All right, hello everybody and welcome to episode four of Movies for Life. My name is Michelle Egan. And I'm Brian Kuyper. We're back. Hello, this welcome time, back. Yeah, we, we uh, haven't seen each other or talked to each other in a couple weeks, so this is nice to I know, be right? back I at it. I know, it's, it's, it's fun. <laughs> We've got a great double bill today. Oh man. We have an amazing double bill of movies. Yeah. To just gush over today. I'm so stoked about this. Yeah, there's there's no there will be no lack of gushing uh, over these two. I don't think so. No. Yeah. So uh today we have up our dad's birth year movies. So my dad was born in nineteen forty nine, so we're gonna be talking about the Carol Reed classic. Third Man. And uh, my dad's birthday is 1957, so we're going to be talking about the amazing directorial debut of Sidney Lumet, 12 Angry Men. I gotta say, uh, both of these movies are among my favorites. Um, 12 Angry Men I, I saw younger, but was sort of like instantly gravitated to. Me too. Yeah, and it was just like... Wow, I mean, this—it was one of those situations, one of the first old, older movies that I really latched onto, like a classic film that I really got into. I think it was like that for me too, because mm-hmm. I remember watching it very young. I'll tell later yeah, on, but we're gonna. Yeah, it was definitely one that I, I got into right away, and I've, I've loved it ever since. Never get bored of it. Yeah, never. And and this rewatch was just as electrifying as ever. Um, so, but we're actually starting oh, with. The yes. Third Man. Which I just saw for the first time last night, mm-hmm. and again, like, uh, half an hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, I've seen this movie probably half a dozen times over the past 15 or 20 years. The first time I saw it, I, I didn't really latch onto it for some reason. I think I had uh, I had seen it because uh, it was on the original AFI Top 100 list of greatest american movies mm-hmm. though it's not really an american movie <laughs> it's a british film in, in almost yeah. every sense of the word the director with the studio that backed it internationally and it's really only called an american film because it was released in the united states by selznick international pictures which you know it's like hardly anything american about yeah, it yeah <laughs> it's it takes place in vienna <laughs> austria yeah, after the exactly. war um after world war ii um and that's one of the key elements of the movie that's so interesting to me is this sort of international city uh, that is... Amazing location. Amazing location. You know, it's still being reconstructed uh, mm-hmm. when they're filming it. They're filming it on actual bombed-out rubble in a lot of situations. But then you have these interesting sort of things that are there. You know, you have the Ferris wheel in the middle of this bombed-out <laughs> area. And it's just kind of like, what the heck? It's eerie looking. Yeah. And I, I love that, you know, you're going through these these chase scenes down these streets that are, you know, everything is wet and wet, reflective yes. and, <laughs> and, and, you know, the cobbled streets and all these things. And then you finding yourselves in sort of these massive palace hotels and buildings and stuff like that mm-hmm. around you and then all of a sudden you're you're on piles of dirt and bricks and things that are trashed and bombed out cars and all these things it's so i mean there's so much you can just imagine them doing like location scouting and being like oh this would look really cool you know yeah, it, <laughs> and it just looked and the the cinematography that beautiful black and white 
mm-hmm. cinematography of this film is astonishing. Then, yes. of, then of course, that has the everything that is off kilter in the movie. Everything is this Dutch angle. Uh, so many Dutch angles. Yeah, I loved it. The whole movie is is one giant Dutch angle, uh, just about. But then you also have these great international stars. Some I'm not really all that familiar with, but the cast is led by uh, Joseph Cotton as Holly Martins, and he's our lead. He's our hero, if you want to call him that, yeah. uh, throughout the movie. He's a hero, I think, he, sort of. Yeah, he's... he's. Well, we'll talk about that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. And then um, <laughs> then we have Alita Valley as Anna Schmidt, then Trevor Howard as Major Callaway. Callahan? <laughs> no, I'm, no I'm, I'm English, ah, not Irish. That's a joke. Ah. I'm English, not Irish. Yeah, <laughs> Callaway. I'm English. Yeah, I love that line. It's kind of hilarious. Uh, but um, then there there are lots of stars that were not particularly known as American stars, um, so their names wouldn't necessarily resonate uh, now. But I have obviously left off one actor in particular, and that is Orson Welles, who appears in this movie about as much as Freddy Krueger appears in The Nightmare on Elm Street. He's just not in it that much. But we are always talking about him. Uh, Harry Lime is is the third man. Uh, he is this presence that is throughout this entire film. And who better to, when you finally see him, for it to be Orson Welles. Yeah, I know. I know. And, and he... Hot Orson Welles, as we talked yeah, about. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit uh, last night on Twitter, yeah. <laughs> Orson Welles, I mean, I'm not generally attracted to to dudes, I'll admit, but yeah, Orson Welles uh, is undeniably charismatic and attractive, and he needs to play that character, and it also, it, it, it's so, when we find out what he is doing, what the character of Harry Lyme is doing, and how <laughs> psychopathic, really, he, this guy is. Yeah. It's like, why would people latch on to him? Why would people do what he says? It's because he's Orson Welles. It's because he's He's Orson Welles and he's hot. And he looks really good on camera. And he gets like all the best shots in this movie. He does. He does. Okay, so we should probably back up a little bit. We start out with with Joseph Cotton as Holly Martins uh, showing up in Vienna. We get a little nice little narration at the beginning. It's it's, uh, actually done by the director, Carol Reed himself, where he sort of lays out what's happening. In Vienna, which has been after the war, it was split into four different quadrants: the American, the British, the Russian, and the French sectors. And um, no one really speaks the same language. There's a very international feel to the movie, except they say a mm-hmm. smattering of German, because of course the people in Austria speaking German, of course. So you have all these natives. You can kind of tell who the natives of the city are because they speak German. And they're not subtitled. I know. Yeah, it's 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 and they're not often. I wanted to know what they were saying yeah, so much, yeah. but it was kind of cool that they didn't subtitle it. Yeah, kind of puts you in with Joseph Cotton and not really knowing what's going on. Exactly, you become a tourist in this city just as Holly is because he he's a novelist. Of, uh, he he writes uh, cheap novelettes, I believe, is what they describe it as. So he comes to Vienna. He's invited by his friend Harry Lyme to stay with him. He gets there and he finds out that Harry is dead. He has been hit by a car. He actually goes to his funeral and happens to see uh, Harry's uh, lover, Anna, and she seems rather 
distraught. So anyway, that's that's sort of the setup of this movie. And so the first half of the movie, first hour of the movie is a mystery. It becomes a mystery because there was because the porter says that he saw or heard Harry being hit by the car. He heard the brakes squeal, then looks out the window and he saw three men carrying who he assumed was Harry's body over to the statue of St. Joseph. And then his own doctor just kind of happened to be in the area right. and he showed up and pronounced Harry's de- Harry was dead. Uh-huh. Um, Harry's own driver is the one that ran him over. Mm-hmm. So yes, those, his whole uh, death is very... Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, so um, Holly starts to think that Harry was murdered and uh, he's trying to figure out who this third man is. This mysterious third man, because he knows the identity of the other two, who were associates of Harry's. The plot is a little bit complicated. I mean, it kind of has a lot of things that happen in quick succession, but the overall sense is is about the characters. So we we have sort of this... I found myself, when I took notes of this, saying, okay, then we go to the English police are searching Anna's apartment. Uh, They confiscate love letters from Harry. You know, the first half is this mystery, and then we go to... We find out that... There's a lot of different Yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, (laughs) then then he's going to meet the porter, uh, because the porter calls out to the window, hey, I have some information for you, and then... He turns around and he sees someone, obviously, but we don't see who it is. And the next thing we know, the porter's dead. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Holly gets thrown into a cab and raced <laughs> through the city. And then all of a sudden he's at this speech that he agreed to do about American... <laughs> he totally forgot about. That he yeah. totally forgot about. About, you know, his... <laughs> His role as a writer and all this stuff. It, that that seems really funny too because the, the, that was one of my favorite the, scenes. The earlier, there's an earlier sequence where where they're talking about how oh we're from the you know the Ministry of Culture or whatever like the British Ministry of Culture and we we put on all these uh, we put on Hamlet a couple of weeks ago or something like that. And it says and what was that other one? It's like the the <laughs> the striptease. Yeah, it was just like. <laughs> So obviously, um, Graham Greene, uh, who wrote the script and the novel, he essentially wrote them at the same time, has a real high opinion of, of uh, British Ministry of Culture. So, but but soon, uh, th- where where the meat of the movie really starts happening to me is when uh, I mean, obviously, everything that's happening up to this point. I mean, you're getting to know Holly sort of his hapless nature he's sort of blindly devoted to harry but also falling in love with anna exactly. and anna's really heartbroken about harry yeah. and, and that's that's tough to watch you know because it is because anna's like she's so sad i felt so bad yeah. for her the whole time yeah i mean i mean if she stays in love with harry in my opinion throughout the whole she, I think so, she, yeah. she never, she, she appreciates Holly, but I don't think she could ever love no. her. But we'll get to that a little bit, too. Yes, yeah. I have a lot to say about her. Yeah, um, and please don't let me dominate the conversation here. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> talking plot, honestly. Because there's, basically, just to say, the first half of the movie, there's just a bunch of crazy shit going down. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah little details of the mystery to, to work out and people that are involved and people that you got to keep straight. Mm-hmm. Which is hard. But I, to I do. got it. Yeah, it's 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 hard. I think that's one of my troubles I had when I first saw the movie was that I just couldn't keep it all straight. But then what it really comes down to is when Calloway lays out what it is that. 
Harry's been up to. And what Harry's been up to is this black market scheme where he and his associates... Where most of the black market stuff yes. was like innocuous stuff like liquor and cigarettes and... Shoes. They talk about tires. Yeah. yeah. And shoes. Harry was just a... Oh, yeah, Harry. exactly. And <laughs> so what what's going on? Because even the opening sequence, I mean, you see black market things that are sort of like those jokey kind of things. Oh, I'm selling in the 80s, you know, selling jeans in Russia or something. Yeah. You know, it's not anything that... It, they do show a body floating in the river <laughs> at the beginning. You know, someone... An amateur, as he says. So we learn from Calloway, though, he presents a mountain of evidence to Holly that Harry and his associates have been stealing penicillin from military hospitals, diluting it, and selling it back to other hospitals. And on the, so it's completely ineffective. What it comes down to, you know, is children in particular dying. You know, he's essentially murdering children. And Holly's just like, even then, I is I can't, I can't believe this. It takes him some time. Yeah, it's not until he really sees yes. what he's done to finally turn against him, which should have done for you. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, I mean, he he's <laughs> but I you get it with the the friendship and the loyalty. Yeah, for sure. And he's and he's presented with all that evidence, but still, he's like, I I can't believe this yet. I mean, he he sort of kinda agrees to to help Callaway at that point. But he's not committed. You can tell he could be persuaded otherwise. Then is when we get to probably the most famous scene, the two most famous scenes in the movie. And it's it all comes down to that little cat. I love that cat. That cat. Uh, and I love that little throwaway line. Holly goes Look. back to Anna's apartment and he tries to play with the cat. And he, the cat is like, oh, this cat doesn't like me. He's like, oh, he only likes Harry. And yep. they can, sort of I that down. I loved that little bit. Yeah, and they just continue their little conversation. Then the camera pushes through the plants, and you and you see that's a great shot. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? And you see, I loved that. And you see someone walking down the street from the distance, and they stand in in, in the doorway. Their faces covered in shadow, and the cat goes the running cat. up to him, and like you can see it, like as soon as he like kind of rubs up against his leg, I was like, ah, oh, Terry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's it's, it's it. such a great moment. Moment. That's a great reveal for a character. Even before you see it, that it's actually him, you know it's him. Exactly. And I love what's, that. What's so great, I mean, because you know Orson Welles' name is on the poster going yeah. into this movie. Orson Welles. You know he's coming up eventually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, jo Joseph Cotton was a reliable star, but he was no Orson Welles. People knew Orson Welles. And so for that moment, when the light just comes on and there, there he is, and he gives that little smirk. That's a great shot of him. Yeah, and it's like, and we're like, oh, it's Orson Welles. So awesome. Who is he? And then, and then Holly immediately says, Harry. That moment is, it's just like you know, I can imagine seeing that in 1949 or 1950 and thinking, holy shit, <laughs> this is this is one of those great reveal moments of any character. Yeah. And you await, it comes at the one hour and six minute mark. Yeah, way over an hour. <laughs> yeah, in an hour and what, maybe 35, 40 minute movie. And, and it is astounding. And then he's gone. He's just gone again. Yeah. And you're like, wait, what? And, you know, the whole energy of the movie changes. It's it's just like, oh, my, you just, you just kind of get this thrill at that moment and it sustains you know all the way it, it's it comes at just the right time i think too mm -hmm. for for you to get you're that. ready for things to be ramped up and yeah yeah and and they do get things solved and so he 
kind of chases him down the street and he's just gone. He, he can't figure out where he went, so he comes back with Calloway to the same to the same spot and they discover Calloway and Payne, by the way. I want to mention Payne because yes, he's yes. like one of my favorite you're, characters. Payne Payne with the, the punch in the I face and everything at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes, very I loved him. He's he's great. Where he just like punches him in the face at the beginning and then is like, Oh, better get you up, sir, be careful. <laughs> he's like, You just punched him in the face. And then he's like super nice to him about being a fan of his books and everything. Oh yeah. Uh, you, that was such a great character. It's it's yes, absolutely, absolutely. So we discovered that there's this whole world down in the sewers, uh, is where they are is where they're Another heading amazing to. location. Yes. Now some of m- much of it was filmed in the actual sewers of Vienna. There was some that was done on the stage, but not much. Orson Welles didn't particularly want to do that, <laughs> as I understand. Um, but whatever, it looked cool. Whatever. Well, I mean, ultimately, I, I think he he was just like, well, this is a pretty good movie, and this is a pretty good part, so I, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. You know, you know. Later, he called it. The... And then we get to see more of the sewers, like <sighs> later on in the final chase scene. But that first shot of it like Mm -hmm. i just like that's such a cool location that huge archway and all the water rushing down i was just like ah this is gonna be so cool later on because i kind of knew i hadn't this is the first time i saw it but i kind of seen little clips of it before in pictures so i knew that we're gonna go more into the sewers but uh, i just love that they must have just like loved shooting down there because it just (laughs) makes for such great cinematography it does it does i mean and and it's funny because I only thought about this just now. I mean, sort of that automatic wetness that's on the walls in there. They sort of bring up mm-hmm. into the streets later for the, for the closing sequences, too, you know, because you see some of that same, the wet brick sort of look um, yeah. in, in the streets uh, earlier in the film. You know, apparently they had fire hoses going <laughs> for 24 hours during the shoot of that, uh, which is Oh really? Yeah, I, I watched. There's a documentary on the disc that I have. I got, I lucked out and I got the uh, Criterion edition that was uh, released. It's it's the second release of the Criterion. It came out on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, they both have been long out of print. I happened to get the DVD, and it's got. That's the one I rented from the library. It's the Criterion edition. So. Yeah, but there are two. Uh, this is a two disc version, and originally it was released on one on a single disc that has just like the picture of Orson Welles on the cover, and then this one has has the little shot of Holly mm-hmm. in the sewer. That's Holly, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's got a it's got a documentary, a ninety minute documentary on it called called Shadow of the Third Man. Uh, that that's really interesting. I, I was able to watch it last night pretty fascinating he goes into some of the some of the interesting tidbits like that um i'll have to see if that's what i have on mine i did watch um on the dvd that i have there's uh, an interview or an interview an introduction from uh peter bogdanovich for the movie that was cool peter bogdanovich is always engaging another in, connection to our list i know <laughs> he is always engaging in an interview if he's talking about a movie he loves i mean what <laughs> whatever anyone else thinks of it it's like i just like listening to him talk about it <laughs> and he will inevitably do uh, an impression of somebody uh in in this case of course it's orson wells and it's spot on <laughs> he he called it the best non-auteur movie ever made yeah so um it's a it's an interesting comment you know partially maybe because of the movie i watched <laughs> yesterday 
I watched Mank yesterday, and there's sort of the old okay. Orson Welles connection. I'm, I'm a little bit over the whole auteur theory. <laughs> okay. Um, Maybe. And I, 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 I have been for a while, but not just that movie, but I think the true auteurs don't brag about it. Anyway, <laughs> um, so. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was funny that uh, Mank uh, premiered yesterday. And yeah. I was watching the third band for the first time, and we were talking about this today. I was like, ah, synchronicity in the world. It, it, it was it was a really so interesting cool. thing. So I did happen to watch it. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, so anyway, we're we discover the sewers and and all that. Okay, then comes the big, incredibly famous scene uh, at the Ferris wheel, where he has a conversation in person, face to face with with Harry Lyme. That scene struck me this time as uh, just scarier than I'd ever realized before. Just realizing how crazy, how, I mean, how utterly heartless Harry Lyme is. How blasé he is about yeah. everything. I mean, his whole... Sp- the whole time, like, Holly, like, he was seeing Harry for the first time alive, but Holly was so worried about Anna because she had just been arrested yes, that's for her right. fake papers, and Harry is just like, eh, whatever, you know. You can just feel like this guy is a jerk. Why is everyone like so nice to him and covering up for him? And exactly, yeah, it was really interesting. It was interesting, and it was great to see Orson Welles act that because he mm-hmm. he really embodied that part of the character. And you, yes, uh, yeah, just feel it. The the part where when he goes to the door while they're like way up yes. on it, and he opens the door and. You can just see him eyeballing Holly. Oh yeah, I love that little moment when Holly just goes over and he the frame. holds onto the window. Oh my gosh! And, he, yeah. he, and that's also proof that Holly is not as hapless as he appears to be. He's aware enough of of what he knows. Hair might probably yeah. kill him. Mm-hmm. But that, like he says himself, like I'd be easy enough to get rid of, wouldn't I? Because I I know about you exactly. I'm like so. Oh, and and that whole speech where he's just standing there and says, look at all those little dots down there. He's talking about children on the playground down on the rides that are down below the Ferris wheel. Victims? Be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spend? Free of income tax, I mean. Free of income tax. The only way you can save money nowadays. A lot of good your money will do you in jail. That jail's in another zone. There's no proof against me. Besides you. Oh, my God. She's like, that's the only way to make money and save money right here. (laughs) He was like, uh, Harry, maybe you would do that, but I don't think Holly is the kind of guy I, to do that. No. Just, yeah, again, it just shows how, how callous he is as a person. Exactly. Which is surprising, considering, like, all the stuff you hear Holly and Anna talk about him. Yes. Before we meet him. There's so much warmth that they feel towards him, but it's like they just had the wool pulled over their eyes this whole time. Right, because they didn't know anything about what he was doing. Yeah, and so it's just like, oh, it, it, it's it's kind of a heartbreaking scene in a lot of ways. Do you think Harry actually loved Anna? 
Do you did you feel that from him at all? No. Like he writes her name in the fog in the window yeah. a little bit, but the like that's like the only inkling that he was even thinking about her in any way. Yeah. To me. Yeah, I I, I agree, and I don't no, I don't think he does. I don't think he loves her. I don't either. It's a convenience or it's a, you know, hey, I'm with this beautiful woman kind of thing. Now, Anna, on the other hand, she adores Harry. Yeah. It's clear uh, to me. We haven't talked a lot about about that character. We probably should. I mean, because, okay, Alita Valley, first of all, I mean, she was sort of being, Selznick was trying to style her as the new Ingrid Burke. And you can kind of see that in this movie. There's almost an anti-Casablanca thing going on in certain elements of this movie. Uh, where where you have sort of the optimism of, of you know, the, the cynic turned optimist in Casablanca. This is backwards of that. This is the optimist yeah. being like, oh, this world is awful. It's full of heartbreak and betrayal and these horrible things that humans inflict on each other you know anna is got a touch of that bergman-esque thing happening but i keep calling her anna i think she's pronounced it's said she it's anna in the movie i believe and so i keep on saying it wrong so i apologize but that character i mean tell me what you said you had some thoughts about about her character i'd love to hear just that you can just feel the the sadness in her. Um, you don't really know too much about her backstory. I, I didn't really get like where exactly she came from, but you know, she says like one of the first things she says to Holly is that you know I wish I was dead too. Mm-hmm. You're just like wow, girl, okay. But she's so devoted to Harry and loves him, and like now she feels like she doesn't have anybody or anything left in this world. She's always just uh, that one. The one scene that absolutely kills me was um there was one part beforehand when she said something about had harry said that she laughed too much and then when holly goes to see her later on you know in the middle of the night um she also wears his pajamas right which kind of broke my heart Uh, you you can see the hl monogram on the on uh, her pajamas that she's wearing but holly goes to see her like brings her the flowers and she does let out a little laugh and Mm -hmm. And he says, that's the first time I've seen you do that. Do it again. Yeah. And she says, there isn't enough for two laughs. And that just, like, yeah. killed me. It's, it, it, it really is a heartbreaking performance. Because you know how much she has been betrayed, too, uh, in all this. It's yeah. just... She was already hurt from, you know, his supposed, you know, quote-unquote death. death. Yeah. She thought he was dead. And now she, the betrayal of finding out what he really was and what he was doing like that just brought her down even more and that she, and that he would he just feel for her and so that much. he would just leave her even though he wasn't actually and not care and not try to help yeah. her and you know oh she got arrested oh whatever she's being taken to by the russians exactly. you know it's one of those characters that i mean she's kind of an enigma because you don't really know what's mm-hmm. going on with her i hate this in a weird way she she reminds me a little bit of penny lane in Almost Famous, you know, obviously <laughs> being one of my favorite movies, but she's, you don't really know anything about No, I see that. At all. You don't know anything. She's a complete enigma, but you see these moments, just see these glimpses mm-hmm. into her, uh, into her true heartbreak. Because these are characters that are broken characters in a lot of ways um, and, and are just trying to 
put forward this this face of of having it all together. Oh, she talks. She essentially talks. But she gets stronger. Yeah, she does. I think towards the end of the movie. Yeah, she does. Oh, that. Which was good to see. And, and we we will talk about that closing shot for sure. But um, oh God, yes. Yeah. Um, so after the conversation on, and of course, it's I I can't end the uh, Ferris wheel scene without mentioning the cuckoo clock speech. This is supposedly the one thing that was actually written by Orson Welles and not, oh, really? and not okay. Graham Greene. Um, so it's a famous speech. Uh, I, I will get it wrong. But essentially what he says is we had so many centuries of the Borgias in Italy, cruelty and all this stuff, and it produced Leonardo, Michelangelo, and the Renaissance. And in Switzerland, they had democracy and peace for 400 years. What did that produce? The cuckoo clock. You know, so it's this, that little speech is so brilliant and so funny and so gets to the heart of the character of Harry Potter. So after this, go ahead. I can't say that there's not a little bit of truth to his comment. Oh, of course there is. There's a great (laughs) deal of truth. There's a lot of truth. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's it is this. But cuckoo clocks are cool too. Cuckoo clocks are, cuckoo clocks. are amazing. So after this uh, conversation, Holly, I think, is genuinely disturbed by that. He actually agrees to help Calloway out after uh, to take Harry down. He says Harry's alive. I'm going to help you find him. And then he goes and sees Anna, and she says she kind of talks him out of it. I mean, you just sort of get this back and forth with yeah. Holly again, where he's just sort of like, ah. Oh, I'll go with this. I'll go along with this. I'll go. You know, he, he he's so indecisive, it seems like, um, through so much of this. Make up your own mind, dude. Yeah. So Calloway says, okay. Your instincts told you not to trust Harry anymore. Go with that, because that's the right decision. Exactly. Well, and then you get the scene where Calloway just says, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and drive you um, drive you to the train station. We'll get you on that plane. That was a trick. And he says, i got to make a stop. You might find it yeah, interesting. It you come in with me. <laughs> it was a trick. Get him. Oh, but that's where he wanted to go. And you don't. And he, so he takes the kids and he takes Holly, I mean the kids, uh, Holly into <laughs> the children's hospital to see the effects of Harry's evil. And you don't see any of these children in the scene, but you don't have to. But no. the looks on Joseph Cotton's face, Trevor Howard being stone faced, but just saying he was meningitis. He, he would have been healed, but he got some of Harry's pencil. And then they show that mm-hmm. teddy bear. That teddy bear face down. Face down. And it's just like, ah, uh, that is everything you need to know. Then it's like, okay, you're right. I'm with you again. Then we get to the sewer chase at the end, which is just yes. rad. <laughs> I mean. So freaking cool. And basically all, that was my last major note was the sewer chase. Because <laughs> it's just great. You had actual, apparently there uh, were Viennese police who patrolled the sewers, and they are actually the ones in the movie. Oh, cool. So um, you're, when you see them sort of shuffling across that sort of waterfall thing and, yeah. and, and sort of rappelling down different rappelling parts down, and would, all yeah. that stuff, that's really people who did this for a living, which I think is really awesome. awesome that they were able to include that. And there's a certain documentary quality to it. Um, where we're not just telling the story, we're also showing you um, this real world, this this real place that has been destroyed and is is slowly telling the story of Vienna. Yeah, is slowly being rebuilt, um, very slowly, 
clearly because I mean this is four years after the end of the war and, and it's still it's still so much in ruins I, I imagine there was just a lot of inability you know when you have a city split into four different sections to get any cooperation to get the city repaired and, and, and back on its feet yeah. you know which gave space for this black market to take hold this situation. and what do you do when there's just giant piles of rubble that yeah. used to be a building or a, that big staircase yes when um he's running from the scene of the porter's death it's just got like crap all yeah. over it basically like how do you clean up something like that i know that's insane i love just like watching like looking in the background in this movie and just looking at the locations and the architecture it's like because there's still so much beauty in the city yes contrasted with with the destruction and and there's this great shot of harry it's it's from really far away and you see harry up on the oh, top of this appears ruin. on top of the rubble yeah it's like just before the final chase sequence and he's just sort of looking out over this world of his it's 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 sort of like the last mm-hmm. the last look of the emperor you know before he's taken down it's just wild. So they spring the trap on Harry. Uh, he he runs into the sewers, a whole chase through the sewers. He gets wounded. He gets shot, and then he there's that great he kills pain. Damn it! Yeah, and he, he's climbing up the <laughs> spiral staircase, and he puts his hands up through the grate at the end. Oh, that's so great! And then and then uh, we get to there were some lines of dialogue cut, but. Uh, it, it doesn't need. They don't need to be there because it's all in just these little gestures. Where Holly has the gun, he finds Harry, and Harry just gives that little nod, and and you hear the gunshot, and uh, the next thing you see is Holly, you know, walking through the archway, uh, you know, that brick archway. Okay, that's the best shot. Orson Welles yeah. didn't get doesn't get all the great shots. That's true. That is the best shot the whole movie. It's it's in. Incredible. And it's this great distance shot because it's similar to yeah. one that's earlier where Harry's been cornered and he's sort of, um, it's a famous shot too, where he's in that same archway, except he's in the foreground. And he's like all the way on the right side of the screen. Yeah, he's yeah. sort of in the foreground of it and, and, and he's, he's got his arms out like he doesn't know where to go. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a famous shot. I mean, if you Google the third man, that's one of the pictures you'll see. Uh, but. <laughs> And the shot of him in the stairwell, like yes, looking down at, at his face. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good shot too. Yeah, so much in this movie. Yeah, it's, it's this is like a cinematographer's dream. Like I said, you know, especially this last sewer chase scene, just mm-hmm. the the echoes. Yes, and the sound of the the rushing water, the darkness with like the little bit of light that causes that really those really hard shadows on the wall, and again yes. like the archways with the little nooks that you can like hide in and stuff. And speaking of... So much good stuff to enjoy. Absolutely. And speaking of sound, one thing I didn't mention is the music. Oh, my gosh, yes. The music, the music is all uh, zither music. I, I wrote down the name uh, just a moment. Okay, is that what it was? Because yeah. I was just like taking my notes. I was like, this is like jaunty. It's like the only yeah. one I could come up with. I didn't know what it was like specifically. And just to show how important the music is to the movie, I mean, the whole... I mean, the opening credits are over the strings of a zither being played, of playing the main theme okay. to the song. Uh, it was uh, Anton Karras was the person's name who did the music for this movie. He 
was a discovery of Carol Reed. They were in Vienna and heard this guy playing in restaurants and things like that. And it's like, what is that instrument? It was this guy, uh, Anton Karras, his, and this, this, the main thing, that whole thing became, mm-hmm. which is now stuck in my head. Yeah, it became, it, it will be, believe me. It, <laughs> it, it became this huge hit. People started buying zithers like crazy. It made him comfortable uh, financially for a while, uh, for like the rest of his life, as I understand. And but he still just played in these little, little restaurants and on the streets and things like that. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, the music like totally changes this movie. It does. I didn't know anything too much about this mm-hmm. like before I watched it. Like. Um, but I was really expecting. I knew it was like a noir, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I was expecting the typical like dark and gritty and stuff. And then there's this music throughout. Yes. There's never any of those like um, any time you expect like one of those like hard like you know musical stings at like a, a certain turning point in the story or yeah. something. You never get that. You just get the same music again, and it's so unnerving. Yes. It is. It really is. And you know what's funny is not until recently did I ever really think of this as a noir. Because I think of noir as being so American. It seems like a a distinctly American kind of movie. So like Double Indemnity, uh, Out of the Past, things like that strike me as noir. But this definitely is as well. (laughs) You know, it's a crime drama in Mm -hmm. a city, in dark streets with harsh shadows and interesting angles and the femme fatale, it's all there. Um, And sort of your, you know, your protagonist is, is uh, ah, kind of a dead end kind of person, you know? Uh, So it's got all of the hallmarks of it, but for some reason, maybe it's because of that sort of international sensibility of it. I'd never really thought of it as noir until recently. I don't know why that is. It's also like weirdly a comedy. It is. And I think the That's music got from it. the music is one of the things that helps to underscore that. I mean, no pun intended. I, it's just <laughs> something about the music. It's so ripe for this, and it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. It should be so wrong. It should not fit under this movie at all, but it does. Yeah, and and I I love that because I well, the first time I saw this, I went into it not knowing anything about the music and that being such an element of it. But it is through so much of the film, but when it's not there, you have the echoing footsteps and you have mm-hmm. the that kind of otherworldly sound happening too. Okay, so Harry's <laughs> dead again. Uh, yes. We're back at the grave again. Yes, for a second funeral. Yeah, it's almost like a, a, a second, a replay of the opening. Uh, Anna's there. Mm-hmm. Holly is there. He's going to be driven back to... Uh, Holly's going to be driven back by Callaway over to the airport or the train station to get a plane back to the States, right? And he sees Anna, and he asks to be dropped off. And he just stands there and that walk, and that they just linger on that shot. And it's just falling leaves, and he's leaning against that cart, and she's just... You're waiting for that moment for them to meet up and embrace. And she... And be in love and yeah. walk off together. And here's the thing. 
here's the thing. Graham Greene said, hey, <laughs> she should come over and they should walk off arm in arm. And that's oh, really? the way the novel ends. The novel has a slightly happy ending. I love this ending, though. This ending where she just keeps walking. Does not even look at him. Doesn't even he look right at past him. him. Doesn't even, I mean, you, you think she's, at first it's almost like, is she going to walk straight into the camera? You know? <laughs> I mean, it's almost that shot that was in the Cape Fear remake of Max Cady coming out of jail where he just walks right to the lens. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that, that shot. It's almost that. I mean, she just walks right by. And he just sits there, he lights a cigarette, throws away the match, fade to black. Oh my gosh. Well, that is, and, and you know what? So perfect. And Graham Greene, after he saw the movie, he said... Mr. Reed, you were right. <laughs> That's the way to end the story. That's so freaking perfect. Oh, and it is. Oh, gosh. You know, and I remember seeing and thinking, you know, that shot was reused in The Godfather, of all places, uh, after Al Pacino right. comes back from, after he, the first time he sees, he meets with Kay after he returns from Sicily. He's leaning against the car, and he sees her, okay. and there are trees on either side. And in that sequence, they, in fact, do walk together down the street. So it's almost like an homage to it, but being completely the opposite idea. Instead of Kay just saying, forget it, you know, it's sort of this rejoining. So it's it was it's sort of these, you get, you know, directors like Coppola and, uh, you know, the film school generation. Uh, Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, Scorsese, uh, De Palma, who put these little things from these movies they love into their own films. Um, but anyway, uh, that, cool. so there we go. One of the things that I found out that's really interesting about this movie, too, a week before it was finished, there was a fire in the cutting room. The work print was completely destroyed. All their work that they had done with editing was gone. Luckily, the negative was stored elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they had to recut it entirely from scratch. But, uh, yeah, we almost didn't have this movie. Let's put it that way. That's sad. So um, Don't make me think about it. No, that. no. I, but That's sad. It's one of these wonderful things where, hey, the movie was saved uh, somehow. Yes, they had to redo it, but whew, I am so glad to hear that your first impression of this movie is as positive as it is. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. This was a movie that grew on me over time. I didn't have an instant attachment to it, but I was compelled enough to see it again. Um, and then I ended up reading the book and kind of falling in love with the work of Graham Greene, who's a pretty brilliant novelist. And uh, also Carol Reed is uh, someone whose best films are really worth seeking out to. Odd Men Out and... Uh, the Fallen Idol, in particular, are okay. just excellent movies. Did you have any other? Yeah, I knew I would get to this eventually, mm -hmm. obviously, because it's like super classic mm -hmm. with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton and everything. But uh, I'm glad I watched it like this, like in a chance where we could talk about it, because there's so much like in this that's like we said, like this. These are totally gush-worthy movies we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. There's it's so lush and there's so much to get into with with the characters and stuff i think we hit all the the good points yeah there's at least yeah i know i kind of um, i kind of i don't always like to go <laughs> plot point by plot point but 
it's hard to talk about a movie like this without hitting a, a lot of those because I think it's just a confusing conversation otherwise. Because, <laughs> you know, it, there's a lot going on in this movie. I mean, there, there are some things we glossed right over that, you know, you yeah. spend a lot of There's time something on. that I really liked that was all the little, like, funny moments yes. in the movie, like, I really latched onto. Like I said, because I saw this, I was so confused by this movie at first because I was like, I thought this was like a noir. Like this is this is a comedy. These people are hilarious. Like the first time, um, the way he keeps calling him Callahan instead of Callaway, yes. even though he like corrects him every single time. Um, there's just a quick shot of um, at the Casanova Club of just that lady eating soup, right? <laughs> While Kurtz is like playing the violin like right next to her, she's just sitting there eating soup. <laughs> There's the parrot that bites Holly yes. when he's running from the people. There, there is a lot of humor in this movie, and that, and that's something that I think gets forgotten sometimes. Um, I mean, even even in like a a really fairly serious scene, like like the Ferris wheel scene, um, I mm-hmm. you you kind of get why people are drawn to Harry Lyme because he's incredibly charming. He's uh, he's got that he's got that twinkle in his eyes. He's got the he's got that grin. You know, uh, there's so much about him that's man. I want I want to hang out with Harry Lyme. And then <laughs> he's suave. He's got it all under control. Exactly, he's and got it all figured out. He doesn't have to let his you know, feelings get in the way, which is also why he's a crap person. Exactly, even though he's pretty cool. Yeah, he's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he's a psychopath. I mean, he's, he yes. has absolutely no care for anybody but himself and his own well-being. His better dad. I knew he was mixed up. Not like that. I knew him for 20 years. At least I thought I knew him. Suppose he was laughing at fools like us all the time. He liked to laugh. 70 pounds of two. He wanted me to write for his great medical charity. I'll put this flowers in the water. Perhaps I could have raised the price to 80 pounds for him. Oh, please, for heaven's sake, stop making him in your image. Harry was real. He wasn't just your friend and my lover. He was Harry. Well, don't preach wisdom to me. You talk about him as if he had occasional bad manners. No, I don't know. I'm just a... Hack writer who drinks too much and falls in love with girls. You? Boy, is that a great character, though. <laughs> uh, I know. Orson Welles called it, you know, that's the greatest star part ever written. Because you sit here and you talk about him constantly. You know, mm-hmm. for an hour. And then he shows up for about 15 seconds. You talk about him for another few minutes, then he shows up again. And then he's, I mean, it's just whenever he's on screen, he's the focus. And when he's off screen, he's even more the focus. More of the focus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a memorable, memorable kind of role. I mean, and honestly, someone like Orson Welles with that gravitas and that reputation it's like Marlon Brando and Superman, you know, I mean, he's in it for 10 minutes, but he gets star billing, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, it's obviously, actually it would be better. I, I should say it'd be more like uh, Marlon Brando as Kurtz 
in Apocalypse Now. It's okay, it's yeah. it's extremely memorable, but he's not in it that much. I mean, he's that's I mean that's a good two hours before you get to Marlon Brando in in Apocalypse Now. Uh, but again, they're talking about it through the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, you get the feeling that this could have either been like it should have been either a, a big name like everybody knew like Orson Welles like playing the part of Harry or whoever had played the part of Harry would have been a big star. Yes. If he had done it right and if he had done it good, you know, just because that's the character. And if he had if he had nailed it, if it had been an unknown, if he had nailed that that character and acting it, he could have been a big star if they hadn't chosen someone like Orson Welles. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's just, it's just that memorable of a character and of a, uh, like I said, all the reveals mm-hmm. of him. It yeah. Could have made a star. Yeah, it could have made a star. I, it, it'd be, I, I kind of wonder if it, if it hadn't been someone with that level of star power, if it would have had that kind of, of power though. Cause I don't know if it would have had the same impact in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, so having it be a star as big as Orson Welles in this teeny tiny part is kind of what makes the part work in a way too. So, it, but it's hard to say, but you're right. Absolutely. If it, if it had been, yeah. s- suppose it was, uh, like, a, like a play or something like that, you know, and you have this an, an unknown in that role, it would, I think... They would have stand. They would stand out more than anybody else who exactly. was in the thing. You know, more than all the other actors. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's exactly right. Oh, can we also talk about another teeny tiny little part? Please. In this movie, the Porter's son. Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I missed that. That's a great moment. Okay, that freaking adorable little boy, mm-hmm. just saying like Papa and some German shit and yeah. Papa and all over the place and chasing Holly away yes. from. Uh, he got me. <laughs> it was, uh, I wrote that down, that scene. And, and then there was another, there's another one. The guy with the balloons at the end. Yes. Balloon. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, go away. <laughs> you know, dude, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's these wonderful moments like that, that are so memorable. Again, those are humorous moments too. Cause I mean, the kid, yeah. It's sad. He's just adorable. I'm it's sorry. It's sad. Yeah, it's so sad. And it's and adorable, adorable, but it's also really funny. It's like, hey, look, there's the guy. Yeah. There's the guy. Let's go after him. Let's chase after him. <laughs> it's, oh, that, there's so much that's great in this movie. There is. I'm, I was happy. That I'm so. So much to unpack with this. This is. Uh, you know, I got to. We can go on for more. I know. We've already been going on for an hour, though. So we should probably. Oh, crap. Okay. We should probably <laughs> head over. Uh, to because we got another great movie to talk about another that go on for like great several hours yeah um, man. i mean to spend only an hour on 12 angry men this is going to be a challenge but we'll, we'll try all right we got this we got it okay uh, so <laughs> so yeah is, my movie yes, is go for it 12 angry men i uh okay i don't know what to say other than i just love this movie and i love everything about it um i i think i saw it when i was pretty young i think because i do remember watching this in like sixth or seventh grade Mm -hmm. in school the speech and debate teacher showed it to us um and i had forgotten beforehand like what the lesson was for it because i remember her telling us we had to keep track of every time the jurors take a vote um in the movie and and who changed their opinion and everything but um our friend uh hibachi justice on uh 
Twitter mm-hmm. <laughs> mentioned that it was probably the Socratic method. Yes. He, uh, so, he commented on mine and your post uh, on this movie. It's something that hadn't really gone that Yeah. Before. I was like, I totally forgot what the lesson was. I think that was it. So something, yeah, something to do with arguments between groups of people. And uh, okay, I looked it up. It says it's a form of cooperative argumentative dialogue between individuals based on asking and answering questions. Mm-hmm to stimulate critical thinking, and to draw out ideas and underlying presuppositions. Yeah. Which is like exactly the whole movie, right? Yeah. Well, and the thing is, Henry Fonda is never... And it's... Okay, calling them juror number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 is hard. So we'll probably... I have, I, I have their... <laughs> I have nicknames for them. Oh, you do? Oh, this this we got to get into this. <laughs> I, I actually have my, my Criterion Edition here where it says the cast... And it has them listed as juror number one through 12. And then I have the cover, which tells you which one is which, except the last two are out of order. I've seen this so much. I, I know who they are. I could, I could go by their juror number. Oh, that's awesome. Yes, because, because I mean, sometimes I'm going to have to just go by actors' names uh, just, to get the, <laughs> just to get the point across. Um, but Henry Fonda, I'm not sure he's sure, even at the beginning of no. the movie. I mean... I, he's just asking questions. He's just asking. I don't know. He There's a moment we'll talk about a little bit later about halfway through the movie that that just really got to me this time that I hadn't really thought about too much before. He just wants to talk. You know, when he when he dissents in his first vote, it's just a matter of, I think we should talk about this. I'm not sure whether this kid is really guilty. I know it looks like he probably is. But, you know, before we send someone off to die, let's at least give an hour or so of, of talking about it. Can we do that much for this yeah. kid? I mean, he's 18. <laughs> you know, that's my sense with it. Yeah, and this is actually a good movie to talk about now because um, just recently, for the first time in my life, I was called in for jury duty. Mm. And now, to be honest, I never thought being on a jury was that big of a deal. Yes, or that if I ever got picked to do it, that it would be something quote unquote boring, like you know, a burglary or something like that. But um, I got called in, like, with two weeks left of my term. I was called in twice in the same week, both for murder cases. And it was that part where they, they ask you questions and all that stuff to see if you're right for the jury. And like I said, I never thought too much about it before. But once you're actually there, you see the person, mm-hmm. and you hear all this talk from the lawyers, like, you know, if you find this guy guilty, like, he could go away for a life. Yeah. And I was just like, huh. Well, this is a lot more intense than I ever thought it was going to be. It was, it's a very intense, like, pressure situation to be in that. Ultimately, I I was kicked out for that. (laughs) Pretty much saying, like, I don't know if I can do this. So now, now I think I I definitely get this movie a lot more because of that. You know, and a few, I told you about this as well. A few years ago, I had a similar situation where I was like, I don't think I can be impartial in this particular trial and so yeah. i was dismissed too it's it's so yeah. it's, it's so much more personal than you expected exactly. to be expected to be just like your civil duty or whatever to go and serve yeah. on a jury but then yeah you get into all these like personal questions about your biases and your experiences and yeah. it's totally important now i see that yeah. when you're serving on a jury like as you see with one of the big thing with one of the characters in this yes it's good that i actually got to have that experience and to see that side of it for life and because it helps me understand this a lot more. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I've seen this movie many times. Like I said at the top of the show, it's one of those instances of, of seeing an older... I mean, I 
I should say before that, the older movies that I had seen that I that I did latch onto were like the Universal Monster movies. Always loved those since I was very young. But this was the first sort of I hate to even use this terminology, quote unquote grown up old movie. Now I get it. That, that I, <laughs> Your kid, that's how yeah, you see him. Yeah, that I really latched onto. And I saw it maybe a tiny bit older than you. I might because I remember my because I was in drama in uh, eighth grade, I think. And she was going to have us do a character study. She was going to show us 12 Angry Men. And that was the first time I had ever heard that title. And so it's stuck in my brain. She ended up showing us something else. She actually showed us The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a really great movie that we should talk about at some point. Um, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, it's a really fascinating movie. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, John Wayne. Yeah, totally. But that title, 12 Angry Men, stuck in my head. So what is this? And so eventually I did see it and I was just, because I, I don't remember if I had ever seen a movie with Henry Fonda in it before that. I had probably seen Psycho, I'm not sure, so I might have recognized Martin Balsam. I had seen The Exorcist, so uh, Jay Lee, Lee J. Cobb, you know, like, hey, <laughs> you know, there <laughs> we go. It was a really adult movie made before 19, the 1980s or 1970s. Right. That I really said, I, yeah, this is really good. And I'm very engaged yeah. by this movie. Which is crazy, you know, for, you know, a 13, 14-year-old to say this is, this old, talky, black and white movie is not boring to me. Oh, I was the same way. Even though I think I went a little backwards on it cause, because I was so young. I don't think I knew anybody yeah. in this movie. It might have just been, you know, I, I liked older movies when I was a kid sure. I would watch TCM occasionally I think I probably caught it that way and yeah I, I didn't have a connection to any of the actors then because I didn't know that much about them you know back then and I had to go back later on and be like oh Henry Fonda okay he was juror number eight yeah okay I got it now and Lee J Cobb mm-hmm. he was the angry guy juror number three but yeah I still engaged with it just because it it has that power it's one of my favorite type of movies in general is just the single location, single location. minimal cast yes. type movies. Uh-huh. Like my favorite Hitchcock movie is Rope. Oh, good one. For that reason, I love that. Um, there's another Lumet movie that's great for this too, Dog Day Afternoon. Yes. Then you get into like the newer stuff, Phone Booth, Cube, Pony Pool, The Imitation. Frozen. I love these types of movies. Frozen, yes. Yeah, I... They just have a way of completely engaging me just because you are so... There's nothing to distract you. You're so focused on the story and these characters. Yeah. Even if there's not a lot of action, if it's mostly dialogue, like that just always gets me. And I friggin' love it. it and this is a situation where the dialogue is so damn good <laughs> that, it, yeah. that it's just it's just really engaging. And um, there are seeds uh, planted at different points in the movie that come to fruition at different points in the movie. Um, that I just really latched on to more than I ever have with this viewing. And one thing that I had never really thought much about was the opening sequence, even before we go into the jury room, where, you know, the camera sort of moves a lot. I mean, it it goes, we're following this person, and they're going to this courtroom, and then we're suddenly, someone else is coming out, and we're following them, and there's this family that's talking over here because they're, trial turned out the way that was favorable to them and the and the bailiff is going shh you know and then it's almost like he's shushing us you know as an audience saying okay now it's time to listen okay so this is our world and you see 
and the judge in there is it's talking. So he sounds so bored. You can see, as they show the jury, you can see the character traits of every single one of them. They are already, they are fully in character, even though they're just sitting there. No, oh, really? I've, I've, I'm always watching the judge in that scene because I'm just like, oh, dude. Watch the jury. <laughs> watch the jury uh, next time you do because okay. you can see these little things that all of them are doing. Because, you know, like um, uh, juror uh, number 11, the immigrant from Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, he's sitting, he's listening very intently. Juror number, okay, E.G. Marshall, uh, juror number four, <laughs> ramrod four. straight in his suit. Yes. You know, you have, uh, you know, juror number three has already written him off. And one thing I noticed is Henry Fonda, when the jury is dismissed, he, because, and, and the camera is far back. You're seeing the whole jury box. You're not supposed to focus on one of them, but they all get up. They all start shuffling towards the jury room. Henry Fonda stops and takes a long look back at the defendant. It's not focused on. There's nothing about that. They they don't cut to the defendant at that point. You're still seeing him over the shoulder. And then a couple of people just sort of glance back and things like that. And then they show this, you know, this young hispanic kid i mean he's 18 years old he's supposed to be 18 but he looks like he, 12. exactly i mean he and and i think Lumet is like yeah you know this is a kid <laughs> you know yeah. i think that's the whole point of uh, but, yeah, it's another third man type of situation they're talking about this kid the whole time and you only see him just this once You're like maybe as the movie goes on you even like forget about it yeah. what he looked like and how young and scared he looks in that yeah. situation yeah. Then you go back and you watch it again, and like all the stuff that they said about him the whole time, you're like, look at this little kid. Yeah. You only get that one second, but uh, I think it's just enough. Yeah. <clears throat> so what's fun about this movie is that there's not much of a plot to go through. No. Uh, it's called 12 Angry Men. Um, 12 guys are on a jury, and they're in the jury room talking about the case. That's the plot. It is 100% character. <laughs> that was a movie. This is all about characters. Yeah, and, but that's you don't need anything more than that. No, and and the thing is, there is a little bit of sort of visual style to it, but not a lot. Lumet has said, or said later, was the visual style that's in this is it starts out, you know, sort of the large group. You're sort of low. The camera's sort of at eye level. Then as the day goes on, the camera gets higher. The angles get steeper. And there are more close-ups, you know. And that's one thing you really notice is when there's something important, like, my gosh, when he takes out the knife and he stabs it into the table, you see the close-up of his hand putting it into the table. You see his face, like, in massive close-up, really close-up. And then you see Jay Lee. Or I keep on putting the J first. I don't know why I always do that. It's an old <laughs> Lee habit. Lee Jacob. Lee Jacob. I always put the J first. I don't know why. Is it like Jay Lee Thompson? No. I don't know. It's Lee Jacob. <laughs> I don't know. So it's just these close-ups for so much of that sequence, and you're just like, it's it's jarring almost. Um, and everybody gets a moment like that. Yes. Which I kind of love. That's one of the things is all 12 jurors get a moment to shine. There's even the ones that are just not. There's two that aren't so much. Five and six are, yeah. don't have so much moments. Uh, five, maybe a little bit more. Jack, but six is the only one that's kind he's of. He's got a great moment, though. He's got a moment I really like. He, he had the moment that this time 
really got me. Okay, so they're in the bathroom. Uh, He's just had the conversation with the sports juror, the one who's... uh, Wasn't that seven? Because I wrote that down, too. Okay, so so, uh, who am I talking about? I'm talking about uh, Jack. Did I write that I'm talking about juror number seven. So he just had the conversation with juror number seven, who is Jack Warden. You know, he just wants to Uh go to the ball game, you know, all this stuff. And then... Edward Bins, oh, juror number oh, six. The one I, the two. one I wrote down there, the one I wrote down about when um, eight and seven were in the bathrooms. When seven does his little trick and he like flips a cigarette yeah. and catches it. <laughs> I never really pay attention to that I before. That, I thought that was cool. Yes, then six comes yeah, in. Yeah, well, he that. comes in and says, "What if we go through all this and you manage to convince all of us and you turn out to be wrong?" And he really did kill his father. That and and you know it's not okay in the in the William Friedkin remake. That character was played by James Gandolfini. Okay, and you can see you can see that as great casting. Um, it's a small moment, but for me, this time around, it was just like this guy. You know, I I'm getting I'm just getting paid to be here. You know, it beats being on the construction site or wherever. But that moment where it's just like, what if you do convince us and you're wrong? Yeah. And and he leaves. And then you have uh, Henry Fonda as juror number eight, really going, yeah, you're yeah. you're right. You know, I mean, there's a real moment of consideration. That moment actually got to me this this time, too. Again, like I said, just my jury experience. Like, I wasn't on the jury, but just the Mm -hmm. potential that that could happen. You know, I thought about that while I was in that room. I was like, oh, my God, could I really send someone away to prison? Mm -hmm. Like, even if they did it. Yeah. But then if they didn't do it and we sent him away, like, how am I going to live myself? You know, yeah. Yeah. You said this definitely was a lot more hard hitting this time. Like just thinking about the the power and the responsibility, absolutely, of being on a jury. And and another thing that's so important is this is the hottest freaking day of the year. It seems like yeah. And they haven't. Oh yeah, the weather outside <gasps> like totally like matches what's going on in the room. Uh-huh. Love that. And Mwah. and the rain gets louder <laughs> at certain points. It's almost like they have to yell over the rain. Because, um, <laughs> and I, I had, I wrote, I wrote a weird note. What if in some universe, what if this movie is taking place on the same day that do the right thing is happening? <laughs> that you have, okay. you have this hot day and you know, these, and, and that's the one thing about this movie that, you know, you wish that Lumet could have done more with is that they, at the time, you know, they're doing what they could with it, but. That it's not a more ethnically diverse cast, you know. Sure. Because, and but at the time that just it is kind was, of funny when the movie opens and you're like looking at the jury. It's like it is all it's like twelve old white men. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to laugh at that now, you know. Well, but the, but the thing but that's is, that's how it was back then. I bet. It, it and it largely was. You do have juror number eleven. Eleven. Who is an, an immigrant? Obviously, a first generation immigrant. And then you have uh, Jack Klugman's character. Um, juror number five, who is See, I, I told you I got this think, down. <laughs> I think he's supposed to be Hispanic, but obviously Jack Klugman is not Hispanic. But, um, but I think he's supposed. He talks to be. about growing up he, in a yeah. slum. Yeah, but, and then but, yeah. juror number six. I mean, honestly, an Italian American in the late fifties. You know, there's a little bit of stigma attached to that at the time. They're touching on it a little bit that's honestly one of the situations where the remake is able to do more with that 
The remake's really good. I don't know if you've ever seen William Friedkin's remake. I haven't seen it in a while. Okay, so basically... I've seen it before, yeah. I mean... I remember Tony Danza. Tony Tony Danza plays plays juror number seven. Uh, He's great as it. um, You've... The, the cast is stellar. Um, one of the things that I love, this is a, okay, this is a tangent, but go with me here. Okay. Juror number three <laughs> is played by uh-huh. uh, Lee J. Cobb, who played Kinderman in William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Okay. <laughs> then okay. George C. Scott played Kinderman in uh, Exorcist in Three. Exorcist Oh, he's and he played juror number three in William Friedkin's remake of Twelve Angry Men, and he's perfect. It's all connected. It's all connected. He's all connected, and he's so damn perfect. And so I gotta watch that again. It's it's the the remake is worth watching, and it's just I think proof that you get a script this good with a direct with actors that good with a director that good, and you're gonna produce a good product. I would prefer to watch this version, but the remake's really good. You're right about, yeah, the the script and the dialogue being Mm -hmm. so good. This movie is, like we talked about, like our teachers showed us or wanted to show us Mm -hmm. this movie in class. Like, this movie is still being taught, you know, talking about juries, even though... um, what they do in the jury room is not at all what you're supposed to do. You're exactly. not supposed to make those kind of assumptions. Yeah. Um, but still, in terms of and talking it out and thinking about it. Yeah. But people do make those assumptions. Yeah. You know, people do make... And, you know, the idea of... Or you're not supposed to, like, think about things that are not presented as evidence. As evidence, yeah. Or facts in the case. Yeah. So, yes, what Harry, what Henry Fonda does in this movie, yes, we know, is like you're not really supposed to talk about stuff like that in this movie. But... It makes for good drama. It's a, it's a great drama, yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, and you're not supposed to go out wandering in, in the neighborhood. Yes, uh, you're not. Of, yeah, you're not supposed to of the crime and, and, do stuff and, like that. and get buy, the knife, buy a switchblade. Um, yes. <laughs> have a punch. So, do you want to hear my um, my nicknames for the jurors? I, do you have any? I definitely want to hear your nicknames. For we'll the go jurors. through them just to get them all straight. Okay. With each other. Let's do it. Okay. Martin Balsam, he doesn't really have one. He's just the foreman because he's Martin Balsam. I remember him. Yeah. Uh, Juror number two is um, Squeaky Glasses Guy. (laughs) Because he's got kind of a squeaky voice. I love him, I love how sort of, Um, yeah, anyway. Can can we kind of talk about the characters as you're presenting their nicknames? Just to to give an idea who they are. So so we've got to go back back up. Martin Balsam. Martin Balsam. Okay. Okay. First of all, Martin Balsam, I first knew him from Psycho. And I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, man, this guy's awesome. And he is. Um, and then I when saw... When I saw him in Psycho, I was like, that's the foreman from Twelve Angry Men. Exactly. You know, and then, then you see Kate Fear and you go, hey, that's that's the guy from yeah. Twelve Angry Men and Psycho. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, he's... he's um, love him. I love him in this movie because he's nothing like Arbogast. He's nothing like any of the characters I've seen him in other films. He's he's kind of stumbles over his words. He's, okay, let's... um. Why don't we all uh, sit down and um, we'll get started? He tries to organize it. Yeah, yeah. He, he, but he has no no sense of being a leader to organize these people. He's just like the guy who got thrown into it. And he's not doing a horrible job. He's just not really no. suited for it. He's I, the only one, too, that all doesn't really argue with them. He doesn't mm-hmm. really give his opinion about the case. That's very true. Which is interesting it's it really is it's something i hadn't really thought about but you're right he just listens 
Mm-mm. and makes his yeah, he, decision. Yeah, he listens and he calls for votes. And, but yeah, he never actually states anything specifically about what he thinks. He just, he vote he vote changes yeah. one way or the other. Yeah. So, okay, let's move on to Squeaky Glasses Guy. Squeaky Glasses Guy, juror number two. Yeah, so played by... Also uh, known as John... Uh, John, John Fiedler. Fiedler. John Fiedler. And he's recognizable to me from other films of the period, but he's sort of like George McFly in Back to the Future. He's sort of he's sort of little in the background, and then but when when he's faced with a bully, with oh, someone yeah. really, he's gonna punch him in the face, <laughs> and that's kind of what he does. I love that about him. Yeah, yeah he's he's gonna he's like, hey, wait a minute. It's, it's, yeah, for the most part, he's just like, wasn't that really interesting? And I'm just I'm just really wondering about this and this and this about the case. And then oh yeah, when he finally gets a stand up. To this guy like you don't get to talk to me like that i was like yeah go squeaky glasses guy exactly okay you got it in you i saw it <laughs> i love it okay juror number three is just angry guy to angry me, guy because <laughs> he's angry angry <laughs> guy he is and the thing is and oh man my favorite line from him i have no personal feelings about this i just oh, want to talk exactly, about right? And you know, as soon as he says, I don't have any personal feelings about this, that this is deeply personal. Is all personal to him. Yeah, this guy yeah. has issues with his own son. Yes. Very much reminds him of the kid who's on trial, and he lets it color him the entire movie. It takes them yes. the entire movie to get him to get over that. And there's some of it that's so He's sad. He's just so... Although, I know, it's so sad because he just holds on to that anger so tight. And he's looking at that picture of his son, of he and his son, mm-hmm. that, in that moment. And, and it's just like, it's sad. It's really sad. Yeah, and, it is. And and it's... Um, you kind of hate him through the whole movie, yeah, but then you get to that part and it's like, all right, dude, I get it. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, if there are two lead roles in this movie, it's obviously Henry Fonda yeah. and Lee J. Cobb. Yes. They're they're the they're the most direct antagonists. The first one to yeah. vote no, to vote not guilty, last. and the last one. And Lee J. Cobb was also the one who came into the movie with a little bit of recognition. A lot of these people have gone on, had go, went on to be bigger stars, but in this movie they really weren't, except for Henry Fonda and and uh, and Lee J. Cobb, who had been in uh, on the waterfront a few years earlier and was pretty darn memorable in that movie uh, so um, I haven't seen that. <laughs> you haven't seen on the waterfront no yeah, uh, i know i'm so no no that's a lot of classics it, and the I thing know. is on the waterfront is, is i think you'll like it I, I really anyway moving on juror number four what's your nickname for, for mr oh, eg mark i didn't say i didn't say these were good nicknames i just call him glasses guy glasses guy well that actually works out because, because that's the glasses what, become a important plot point yeah, for him that's what finally can uh, later on in the movie yeah. he could be like haughty glasses guy because he's like he, like you said he sits up like straight the whole time he's, he doesn't sweat which makes him a freaking psychopath he sweats once he sweats once yes oh my gosh i love that part that's a, that is a fantastic that moment. seems like it. and because he's he, he knows he's, he's he's willing to admit when someone else is right Yep, he's the complete opposite of Angry Guy. My favorite, my favorite line from him is when he and Angry Guy are talking, <laughs> and he says, "And he says, can you believe how juror number eight went and baited me like that? He was trying to bait me." And and he says, "Well, he certainly did a good job, didn't he?" <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, I that's <laughs> perfect. Or when the the other guy goes on his 
friggin' rant uh, towards the end yes. of the movie. And who's the one to uh He's just sits there and the he looks up? right at him. He doesn't. He's the only yeah. one that doesn't get up and turn around. Because he's because he wants to like because he's got that air about him that they've all learned now that when he says something. It's the truth. He means it. He's like, all right, are you done now? Shut the fuck up and don't talk. It's <laughs> yeah, basically what he exactly. says to him. And I love that moment. Oh, that's such a wonderful moment. Okay, so hottie, I, hottie glasses guy, E.G. Marshall. E.G. Marshall would, we should mention, I got to mention, anyway. He went on to play, I, I, I wrote in my notes, uh, he went on to play juror number 10 in Creep Show in 1982. Uh, and get eaten from the inside out by cockroaches, um, <laughs> because he plays he plays racist guy essentially in uh, in, in that movie. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, okay, he's, gotcha. he's he's the old man who lives up in his tower and, and you know <laughs> won't let anyone in and gets uh, gets eaten by uh, cockroaches. Anyway, <laughs> I'll have to watch that again. Yeah, I haven't seen that forever. Yeah. Uh, juror number five is a switchblade guy. Switchblade guy. His big moment comes with the uh, the switchblade. Uh, that is Jack Klugman, mm-hmm. as you said before. Um, I love him in this movie. He's, he's great. great. He's he's all he's very. He's always has this look on his face like everyone else is judging. Him. Or he always looks like he's thinking about something. Yeah. He, he wants to say something, and very few times he actually does. But when he does, like it makes. He gets his message across. He does, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he says, ah, no, no one would ever use a knife like that. You know, you don't use a switchblade like mm-hmm. that. Use it like this, <laughs> you know. Uh, and he's soft-spoken. He's, um, But he does have this sort of look of suspicion on his face. He, thinks, he seems to be really uncomfortable around everybody else. Yeah. Um, and that one time when they have to go around and, like, say their arguments, like, he's the one that wants to pass. Pass. You know, because... Yeah. He's still like kind of inside himself, I think. And yeah. as the movie goes on, and um, they talk more about this stuff, and I think maybe he, because he probably connected with the kid, like he said yes. before, um, when he's uh, talking about how he grew up in Islam and hearing all the all the talk that they're saying about you know people that grow up in places like that and what they assume that they're like. Um, yeah, I think it really gives him a moment to uh, to stand up and maybe deal with some of his own like internal conflict he has about that not to be to be proud of it yeah because there's nothing not to be proud of that's just your life exactly i don't know that doesn't make any sense exactly well but but i'm (laughs) but i'm looking at at his character too he has an appearance i mean he's dressed nicely you know he's not he's Mm -hmm. not you know in just you know, like when you get to juror number six, you know, he's in his shirt, shirt he's in short sleeves and he's kind of casual looking like he doesn't have, mm-hmm. you know, but juror number five, he's wearing a full suit. You know, he's dressed up nicely. It's almost like, has he, has he worked his way out of that situation? Has he found his way out of that slump situation? We don't really know, but it's possible. I mean, but is he have some shame about his past? Uh, yeah, that's you know what I mean. that he's trying yeah. to reconcile with too, um, because he's, he's that better than me. Yes, because he's not meant. there. He probably has some shame, yeah, yeah, about where he's from. Yeah, and doesn't want to reveal that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but but it becomes such a key moment. Yes. To to say you know you because he's able to speak up and say you know I have this 
this particular experience that is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence um, that mm-hmm. persuades I think that's the one that gets to half and half I, or, or at least starts persuading multiple people I, I've seen this so much but I still like it's hard to it's hard to remember with the votes yeah. yeah because because I mean you, you obviously have the first one and then then it's like okay I'll put it to a vote if one person votes to me we, with me we keep talking what made you change your vote? He didn't change his vote. I did. Oh, fine. Oh, Would you like me to tell you why? No, I wouldn't like you to tell me why. Well, I'd like to make it clear anyway, if you don't mind. Do we have to listen to this? The man wants to talk. Thank you. This gentleman has been standing alone against us. Now, he doesn't say the boy is not guilty. He just isn't sure. Well, it's not easy to stand alone against the ridicule of others. So he gambled for support, and I gave it to him. I respect his motives. But the boy in trial is probably guilty, but uh, I want to hear more. Right now, the vote is 10 to 2. I'm talking here. You have no right to leave this room. Yeah, I hear you. Never will. Let's sit down. And obviously, he only gets one more vote his way. Um, But moving on, then, uh, juror number Um, six. I don't have one for juror number six, honestly. Okay. Do you have a a nickname for him? Uh, He's 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 a short sleeve guy. James, Gan- we'll James Gandolfini guy. guy. <laughs> <laughs> he has that sort of air about him. He's Tony Soprano. <laughs> he's a, he's one of the he's a working class guy. You could call him working class guy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, he's one of the ones. He's like the main one that you don't really know yeah, too much about. He doesn't really get as big a moment as some of the other ones no, do. No, he has a he has so. one moment. He has that one moment that we already talked about, but not really much else. Yeah. yeah. And then juror number seven is just baseball guy. Baseball guy. Jack Warden. Jack Warden. Oh, I love him. <laughs> He's so great. I think I'd probably see. He's annoying. I'm sorry. I don't like him. I don't like the. I don't like his character, but I like Jack Warden. <laughs> oh, okay, that's yeah. what I'm saying. I think I had been familiar. No, I can't. People like that drive me crazy. If I had met, oh, I know he drove me up the wall. Juror number seven would be the guy that I would be like, "Won't you just shut?" You know, that yes. that would have been my situation. Would you take this seriously? Yeah, no. would you take that's this what, seriously? That's what I would say. Yeah. Uh, but Jack Warden, on the other hand, is wonderful. He's a great actor. I love him. And I, mean, I think I had probably seen him in While You Were Sleeping was probably the first thing I saw him in that I remember. Really? But I I, I, I love him as an actor. And, and he's been in so much great stuff over the years. But Baseball Guy is just mm-hmm. almost kind of the worst like right below number three yeah. is baseball guy because like I said, he does not take those seriously. And no matter how many times people try to convince him that, you know, his big thing obviously is that he wants to go because there's a baseball game yeah. later on that he keeps talking about. And he's just so again, like blase and callous about the situation. Yeah. Even when he changes his vote, finally, he just does it because everyone else is doing it. And he's like, okay, if I do it, like, then we'll get through this faster and I'll get to leave. Right. So all he wants to do is leave. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, there's no Juror number eight say, needs yeah. no... Yeah. He needs no nickname. Juror number eight needs no nickname. He is Henry Fonda. He's Henry Fonda. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, here we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, of course, he... The one who, uh, who starts all this because uh, when they take uh, initial vote... When they've first gotten into the jury room, just to see where everybody stands, everyone else votes guilty, and he is the only one to vote not guilty. Yeah. And 
he brings up the very good point that, like you said, but let's just talk. Like, we are here. We're in charge of this kid's life Mm -hmm. pretty much right now. I think he deserves a chance for for us to talk about this for at least an hour. You know, he says. Yeah. And um, I'm surprised that he's the only one that would do something like that. Yeah. You know, because you would. It makes you wonder what the trial was like and how mm-hmm. biased it was against that kid that they would just be like, nope, he's guilty. Don't need to even think about it. Because I would be surprised that like juror number nine, for example, wouldn't. Or number 10. Or 10. Uh, or not yeah. 10, 11. Ten's no, nine. Ten. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so juror number nine. Who's, who's the See, you, I get him confused. Sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, I, I, <laughs> you know, I would, I would, I would think, well, and also juror number nine is the one who first to join in with Henry Fonda. Yes. Now, uh, I did want to mention uh, in the remake that um, that character is played by Jack Lemmon, who provides... Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. ...who provides sort of a perfect... Uh, for that time, you know, for a modern actor at that time, I mean, uh, I can't think of a better choice. So, anyway... Coming back to me now. That yeah, just just to give it a little bit of context for people who might be more familiar with, with Jack Lemmon as an actor... Um, Door number nine is just old guy. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph, yeah. Joseph Sweeney. And I, Joseph Sweeney. One of the things he's amazing. I love about him. And he's one of uh, two actors who, there was a television version of this that was filmed first that was on uh, Studio 10 back in the 50s. And he. I tried to watch some of that. I didn't. On the I didn't Criterion. watch it. Uh, but he's one of two actors that uh, was so good in that that they brought him over to the film. So the other was uh, so juror good. number eleven. So yeah, he's wonderful, and he's he was Hume Hume Cronin played him in the remake. He, he has so many great moments. Too. I love him. Is what I love about him is he's just incredibly observant. He's yes. watching, and he's the one who notices the old man, and you know he was trying to hide his limp. And he oh, that's wearing, like such a great. And he was wearing scene. a torn jacket, and he was. He notices the details about the witnesses that are so vital, and especially the one. Now, this the woman, glasses. this was she was in her forties. She was trying to look thirty-five, yes. and she had these two indentations <laughs> on the side of her nose. We're talking about close-ups again. That yeah. whole part—he gets some of the best close-ups. Yeah. One of my favorites is when he's presenting the thing with the glasses to um, number four. Yes. And he has this great moment where he goes, could those marks be made by anything other than eyeglasses? And he like, so, so he puts his hand against his cheek and he just like, like, no, like he knows the answer is no. I love it. And he says, he says, well, what are you talking about? I didn't see those two marks. What are you talking about? I did. You're correct. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I love, you know, it's just, oh, that's the thing about this movie is these characters are so fleshed out. Right? And the <laughs> actors have had time to become them before film ever rolled on them. Because Lumet, from the very beginning, you know, I mean, as as someone who worked on the stage, rehearsal was vital to him. And he did uh, two weeks, I think it was two weeks, maybe more of rehearsal before every movie he ever did because if you he wrote a great book just about the filmmaking process and that actually should be my recommendation is Sidney Lumet's book on on filmmaking because uh, it it is 
astonishingly good and very readable. It's not, it's not, there's nothing dry about it at all. It's very conversational, but doesn't get overly technical. It's fantastic. But he said, you know, rehearsal time, you know, he re- I rehearsed it like I did a play. And then when we got in there to do uh, the actual filming of it, we everybody knew what they were doing. We could get it on the first or second take. It costs less money, takes less time. And he brought in his movies on time, under budget, and, and he made great great movies and so and so i mean i mean don't give me this marlon brando bullshit about you know i don't memorize my lines because because people don't talk that way it's like come on give me give me sydney lumet there's a a few moments in this maybe because of the age of the movie where it sort of feels there's some of course of course but yeah the the actors just all completely embodied these people even though like you said they don't even have names only exactly um eight and nine yeah. get names yeah. at the end of the movie they totally know who they are like i said they only mm-hmm. had two weeks for rehearsal and they shot the movie in 21 days yeah i think which at that time was unprecedented yeah. and now it's done all the time yeah. but i i kind of actually thought that this was more like of a labored like getting everything right with all the different camera positions and stuff. But I, if they had rehearsed so well and, and knew it so well and Lumet knew what he was doing, yeah, they could absolutely get this done yeah. and get out of there because everybody's just so t- freaking talented yeah. on this. Yeah, there's, there's every, the casting is a, such a huge part of this too. Oh, it, yeah. it's, I mean, you get, you know, 12 great actors firing on all cylinders too with a great script. You know, you're, you're going to get something good. Um, and, you know, the thing is, you know, to, to you talk about, you know, something like this could, could feel stagey or something like that. It never really does, except, you know, there are a no. few moments, maybe. But, you know, he used those same methods all the way up to his last film, you know. And, and I defy anyone to say that uh, Dog Day Afternoon or, or even the last one, you know, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead are stagey or, or, or uh, don't feel authentic or something like that you know it's it's the rehearsal process can free actors you know and i think that's why you have people like philip seymour hoffman and uh, al pacino and on and on and on wanting to work with someone like that you know because they give the people like that give give the actors just this wonderful uh, space to work okay I'm taking us off track. Oh, yeah, Back on done. track. Back to, okay, with juror number 10, racist guy. Number 10 right? is racist guy. Yeah, yeah, what else can you, you say? And this you is, knew it. <laughs> this is Ed Begley. Ed Begley yes. Sr. I love Ed Begley Jr. Yeah, don't we all? And Sr. is great too. Yeah, and he's he's wonderful in this role. And his little piece of business is he's got a cold. And he's just sort of <laughs> miserable. And and he's he's blowing his nose constantly throughout this movie. He's just miserable all around. He is this movie. He's got like he talks like he's just like pissed off at everybody yeah. all the time. But yeah, and then uh, what really turns everybody against him is when he just goes on that that rant, racist rant about yeah. what he and it brings in you know what his, these people are like. Yeah, these people. Yeah. His presuppositions about the defendant, and uh, I love that scene. Everybody, even number three, he turns yes, away from him. Yes, 
and pretty quickly. I mean, it's not he's he's yeah. actually the yeah he's like one of the first, first ones to one do it. Yeah. And what's interesting is at the end of that because that's his that's his big moment. That's the that's the big yes. moment for the character. Henry Fonda does not come down on him afterwards. He's already been taken down. And he, Nobody has to say much to yeah, all he says. To show how they feel. He just gets up and says, "We all have our prejudices, and they can cloud our judgment." You know, I mean, he really diffuses <laughs> that situation. Mm-hmm. You know, part of him, you know, despite being and then Ten doesn't say a word the rest oh, of the movie. No, he doesn't. He he he, he even nods his his he his not he's not yeah. guilty. Uh, but you know, Henry Fonda's character, even though he's in some ways, the troublemaker, you know, the stirrer of the pot of this whole thing. He's also, by nature, I think, a peacemaker. You yes. know, he he wants everyone to be even keeled and level headed about this. But, you know, he's not without passion, whereas someone like juror number four, you know, kind of is. OK, so that's his big scene. Then we're moving on. Uh, George Vostovic, um, juror number 11. Uh, 11 is just foreign guy, which yeah. is hilarious that he's sitting next to a racist guy. Yes. And they get a great moment. Yes. Um, when juror number 10 says something. Um, is he talking about don't the defendant? Even speak good, or he's about, yeah, yeah, he's saying he don't even speak good English. Doesn't. Who corrects him? Yeah. Juror number 11 says he doesn't even speak good English. Uh, that is a uh, wonderful moment. And you know, I'm a he's a watchmaker. He's uh, yeah. he's. We also find out. Um, and he loves. Um, he has a little moment where he says he loves democracy and the whole uh, yes. the courtroom process. And he's fascinated by it, and he wants well, to. Th- is that what you're talking about? Like at the beginning, yeah. like when he's the only one like really paying attention because yeah. he's yeah. And he's. I find that interesting too because I think, you know, speaking for myself as a lifelong natural born citizen of the United States, there are certain things that I take for granted about mm-hmm. our government system, about our Im- imperfect as it may be, you know, our justice system. But there are parts of the world, and I think that's part of the implication with this character, that there is no such thing as even an, Doesn't att- have that. A- an attempt yeah. at a fair trial. Yep, you know? exactly. I mean, and we're, we're not... we're. It's imperfect, of course, because as we can see from a film like this, it's made up of imperfect people. And there's no such thing as a perfect system because every system by nature is made up of imperfect people. So it's just the best we can get. I mean, to even call this a jury of his peers is ridiculous. I know. Exactly. Um, that, that's that's one of the lines that's said in the movie because these people, first of all, they're much older. Than, than this kid. They don't come from his neighborhood by and large, you know, or from his type of background or even his ethnicity. It, it's, 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 it's an imperfect uh, They all have prejudices system. against them, probably except five. Yeah, yeah. Before they walk in there. Yeah, and, and you're right. Some of them are, I think, good enough people to admit that they probably do. Yes. You know, like juror number eight. I think would say, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm sure I do. I, I don't intend them, but I'm sure I do have these prejudices. So it's really, uh, so that's one of the things I find. I wish we had gotten more from Eleven. Yeah, he's a really interesting character. Yeah, and he 
doesn't uh, have a lot of moments, but the moments he has are very mm-hmm. important. They're really key moments. And then uh, juror number 12. Last one, number 12, Robert Weber is just advertising guy. He's another, he's kind of like six where, the thing, and, and he's got a little bit of six and a little bit of seven, seven where he's kind of, and he's kind of blase about it, not really taking it seriously. Is he the um, one that has the conversation with, with Henry Fonda about, hey, I'm sure glad we got a murder case because uh, I think so, so yeah. much, it'd be, <laughs> man, I was on one of these. That was so boring. It was just like some robbery thing. It was like. <laughs> like I think that was him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and you're just like, okay. But again, like that line again, got me this time yeah. because of yeah. me almost being on a jury and like secretly uh, hoping maybe for a murder case just because I'm also like a true crime nut sure. kind of thing. But yeah, when you're actually there, like you think it's going to be interesting, but when you're actually there, it's. It's not cool. It's, it's so... dry facts. It's facts. And, but it's, facts. and it's so serious and you, you really feel the weight <laughs> of what you're doing. And you wonder how guys like 12 and 7 even got picked. You know what I mean? They don't True. seem to care. Yeah. They slipped through. Yeah. But yeah, there's nothing else. Like he... I don't really even remember too many scenes except for him talking about his advertising and yeah. like dumb... Uh, phrases that they say yeah. in his line of work yeah there's there's also he and juror number three are the ones playing tic-tac-toe yes. during the i think when juror number eight is talking and he just goes mm-hmm. over and he just picks it up and he throws it this isn't a game this is somebody's life and 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 they're yeah. like hey the nerve of this guy the nerve of which guy come on here exactly the nerve of you people <laughs> right? For playing games while this kid's life is in your hand. And when you think about it, this movie is pretty much in real time. Yes. Right? They're not in there very no, long. No, really not. It's a 90-minute movie. Stop complaining about yeah. <laughs> talking. Yeah, honestly, it's a 90-minute movie. Um, exactly. And, and there's no... I mean, obviously, I, I think you get a sense of dilation of time happening. <laughs> Um, because a little bit, but yeah. not too much. It, it seems like it's mostly in real time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if there's any, but yeah, you just get, I get annoyed so much with threes. Like, like, why do we got to keep talking about this? Why do you keep bringing up facts? It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe cause we're trying to, you know, decide, but if we should really send this kid to prison for life. And I, I just hated that. It's like, you, you know, it comes from his, his own biases because of his, yes. his family. But like some of the other characters like that too, it's like, why do we got to keep talking about this? And it just kind of makes you think it's like, I would not want them to be my jury, man. If it takes one guy to be like, um, Hey, actually maybe we should talk about this. Yeah. And, but I think, I think one of the things that this movie also lacks, of course, is, is women. I, I think that of you wouldn't have, there is a remake of this film that I have not seen called 12. It's a Russian film. I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah. That has women in the jury too. It's, it's, it's not only ethnically diverse and racially diverse like the remake, uh, but it's also uh, has, has men and women on the jury. Um, I like to see it. I, I saw about 10 minutes of it and it was just them marching to the jury room and it's really strange. And so I, didn't get very far. <laughs> I'll have to find that. Yeah. Um, so I think if there are women on the jury, I, I, it, it 
changes the dynamic too. I mean, because I think there's there would probably be more of a sense of hey, guys, we're talking about someone's yeah. life here. You know, I don't know why that never really bothered me that much. But this time I watched it, like that really, really annoyed me. That there were no women. <laughs> Or, or, no, or, or that just that there was so many times in the movie somebody. Do said we need to keep like, talking? Why about do yeah. why do we have to keep talking about this? Why are you bringing up all these facts? It's like because that's your freaking job. Facts are what we have. This is what we're here. That's for. what you're there to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, if we could just touch on a couple of moments, because uh, I, I don't think it makes sense to like talk about each point. I mean, because yeah. this is like we this said, movie is just filled of great moments. It's a yeah. it's a character film, and I think. You know, we we mentioned the one moment where E.G. Marshall, uh, during number four, sweats. That's the best. And that's where he's being asked, <laughs> so what did you do last night? Oh, Because his, you know, uh, four's yeah. main um, yes. sticking point for why he's still voting for guilty is that the boy's alibi for the night of the murder. Oh, the boy, by the way. Yeah. The defendant, he's, in case you've never seen this movie and don't know, he is accused of stabbing his father um, in the chest in their apartment. We didn't really say what the crime was, no. did we? <laughs> uh, oops. Uh, anyway, uh. well, the thing is, in a weird way, that all that almost doesn't. That's almost beside the point in a weird way. You know what I mean? You know, I mean, obviously, it's important because you're trying to figure this out, but that's not the whole point of the movie. But yes, he does have two sticking points mm-hmm. of why he thinks the boy is guilty, no matter what eight says. All the other points that he's brought up. Is that his the boy's alibi was that he was at the movies when his father was killed, but then when he later when he was interrogated by the police, he couldn't remember the names of the movies or who was in them. Right. So yeah, that's a great scene yeah. with Henry Fonda when he kind of recreates that situation yeah. for him because he goes says, back. Oh, uh, where were you Wednesday night? I really? What about the night before that? The night before that? Oh, you were at the movies. What'd you see? It's like, oh, <laughs> we saw this, the and he remember the A picture. And he remembered who was in the A picture. And he asked, you know, then back in those days, they had the B picture as well as the newsreel and the cartoon and all the cool stuff that I wish we still had. Go to the movies for a nickel. Anyway. Mm -hmm. um, But (laughs) But yeah. Go to the movies at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he has a hard time. He gets the name of the movie wrong. He can't remember the actor. Yeah. And he just, yeah, he just. Does that little pat on the forehead? Yeah, and one it's just like beat one bead of sweat. sweat. And, got... and you're almost like, "Wow, did E.G. Marshall make himself sweat on command?" <laughs> you can kind of see. He says he doesn't sweat, but you can kind of see in some shots. You can kind of see like the back of his head is, is wet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's... yeah. The thing with the character is that he doesn't sweat, so that's like such a perfect little moment because yeah. you know, like, ah, got him now. It's it's, it's really <laughs> great, really great. But actually, we really get him with with the uh, the glasses thing. Yes. But the thing is, he's willing, to, he's willing to admit, and he's willing to go with it based on facts. You just need to give mm-hmm. him the right facts. You need to convince him with the facts. Because he's not going to be swayed by how he feels about something. He thinks that you know it should be totally easy to remember the names of the movies mm-hmm. you saw and who was in them. But when he's put in that situation, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe it's not that easy. I've yeah. never thought about that. He's before. very much You're right. right. I, get, I take yeah. your point. And, I get it and, now. And I get your point. I, yep. I take your point, and I agree. And that's what – I actually found myself really liking his character a lot. This I loved him this time around, too. Me, yeah. Because, I mean, I am nothing like him. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not 
uh, hyper-analytical. I tend to be emotional. Uh, how I feel about something is pretty important to me. You know, in a lot of cases. He seems the most honest yes. to me this time around. Yes. More than Henry Fonda. Mm-hmm. He was honest about who he was and how he thought. But he was, like also, like you said, also he could be persuaded when he was proven wrong. And he could admit that. And that's respectable. And I, I yeah, I really liked him this time yeah, around. Yeah. He was one of my favorites. Yeah, definitely. And before I was always kind of like, you know, he's just like the... He's the stuffed shirt. Weird yeah. guy. Yeah, exactly. yeah, the stuffed shirt guy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't Never takes his coat off. It, yeah, everyone else is like is sweltering, <laughs> and they take their coats off. He's wearing a three-piece suit the whole he's, time. Not three, exactly. Maybe, he's wearing he's a, a suit the whole up time. too. You know, like yeah. his shirt. His his uh, not his shirt. His jacket is buttoned while he's sitting down. I mean, who does that? <laughs> That's he's not a psychopath. I'm telling you, he doesn't sweat. Yeah, he wears his suit buttoned up. He's a, he's probably a serial killer. No, I don't want to say that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh, jeez. But also your favorite little moments. Take a look at this knife. It's a very unusual knife. I've never seen one like it. Neither had the storekeeper who sold it to the boy. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. And I say it's not possible. Where did that come from? Where did you get it? I went out walking for a couple of hours last night. I walked through the boys' neighborhood. I bought that in a little pawn shop just two blocks from the boys' house. It cost six dollars. Well, I, I I think we hit most of them. Oh, I re- I remember when um, Joseph Sweeney as 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 juror number ten uh, nine, the the older gentleman, you know, says. You you come back here. You listen to me. And, and Henry Fonda just puts his hand and says, uh, "He can't hear you. He never will." Mm-hmm. You know, because he. Cause I think it was juror number seven. He just went into the bathroom. He's like, "I'm not going to listen to this old guy." And there is sort of this. The age dynamics are interesting, too. And that's something I, yeah, I, I hadn't really. How... I hadn't really um, thought about that much because they disqualify in a lot of ways. Joseph Sweeney's character just because he is old. Um, yeah. They think he, this guy, maybe uh, 15 years ago, he would have had something to offer. Right now, nah, he doesn't have. He, yeah, there's definitely some, offers, some ageism with people here. He offers yeah. some of the most valuable. I mean, he persuades. He persuades juror number four. Four, yeah. You know, he gets with a minute observation that no one else would have picked up. Yeah, there's definitely some ageism from a lot of people. Even mm-hmm. the other guy that's from um, Ten, who's like he's almost as old almost as, he as is. old. Yeah, but then like some of the younger guys are the ones that will stand up and say, um, "You need to respect him." And I, I love that. That's time that's right because it wasn't a Jack Klugman is supposed to be. I think probably yes. the youngest character in the room, and he he stands up to three mm-hmm. when he says something about. about uh, nine. Yeah. Sorry. You want by the the numbers? I hope no one's getting confused here. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, it's, it's and, that, and that's, that's just the, how I've always known him. I always known him as like three, eight. Yeah. And well, part of it, I'm lucky because you know I have the cast list in front of me uh, to help me out here. Yeah. And and that's and that's another thing is is you can watch this movie a couple of different ways. I think you can actually watch it where you just kind of let it happen to you, mm-hmm. where you don't necessarily need to keep track of every single character. Uh, along the way or you can you can get 
you know, really involved in it. You can really get to yeah. identifying all the things about each of the characters at the table in a really intimate way and notice the little quirks because they all have something. I mean, you look at the way they're dressed. You look at the way they, uh, yeah. look at the way they move and walk and, you know, do they shout a lot? Do they, almost... Are they soft spoken? It's all there. You know, yeah. Do they fiddle with You things? could almost watch this 12 different times. Yeah. And, and just, just focus on one, one of them, mm-hmm. the whole movie. And the thing is, there's so much. And and you say, you know, like someone like uh, like juror number six doesn't have that much going on. But when he's no, doesn't have any lines, I mean, they're fully committed. He's fully committed to the character. He's in the character. He's oh, doing yeah. things in the background of the shot. Oh yeah, they all are. Yeah, all of them. They're all. There's always something to to latch on to with any of. And so, yeah, I think we, we hit, you know, sort of the moments that I that I jotted down. Well, there's a the whole thing with um, the, re- the recreation that they do yeah. and um, them talking about his part of his testimony. Um, another one of my favorite parts um, is that the, the old man who lived in the apartment below where the boy and his father lived had apparently heard the boy say, I'm going to kill you. Yes. Before he supposedly killed his father. It's like, you know, we didn't say um, that all the time. You don't really yeah. mean it. Yeah, so like, they have oh, a discussion. They have a discussion. Yeah, they have a little discussion about how um, you know you don't really mean it when you say I'm going to kill this person or whatever. It's just a just a figure of speech. And then eight uh, gets so pissed off at three for some reason. They calls him a sadist. Yeah, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, and it's just, oh, I'm going <laughs> to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Yeah, uh, and then just Henry Fonda goes. Uh, you don't really mean you're going to kill me, do you? I love that one because <laughs> he delivers it perfectly to get his point across. Again, and, and the thing is, so that, many great moments like this, and then that of course leads to the great moment where you know, uh, juror number three is trying to, he's hanging out with the water cooler. They're taking a little break. With juror number four, hey, you, you, you know, can you believe this guy? What? Is, can't believe he did. I mean, he's he's just trying to bait me. He's trying to rile me up. Well, he certainly did a good job, didn't he? Yep. Yeah, that is a moment. That's that was the moment that made me go, "Oh my gosh, I love juror number four (laughs) You know, (laughs) right? Uh, And then again, when he just says, when he just waits for racist guy to finish his rant, then just says, "You've said your piece. Now shut up and sit down and don't talk again." (laughs) You know, I mean, it's like, yes, we know exactly what kind of man. Now shut up! And don't tell her. He doesn't. I can't remember his line. It's so perfectly delivered. Yeah. But okay, so maybe we should talk about the one more thing is is sort of the the ending, how this all wraps up because we've gotten down to its the jury is completely flipped. Yeah. We're now again at eleven to one. The only one. holdout is juror number three. three, and he has a monologue that shows that completely contradicts his early line where he says it's not personal. Yeah. Where he just basically lets it all out about how, you know, his son. Yeah. All they have to do is ask him, you know, like they just say like, we want you to explain Like we've all changed our minds. Why won't you? But they, I love that they don't, that's all I have to say. They don't really have to push him anymore. He talks it, he talks talks himself into it, you know? When he realizes what he's saying and what he's thinking. Yeah. He's, he realizes ah, that. That's a great moment. He realizes that I am judging this kid based on my own experience, not on yep. the facts. 
I am biased and I am angry and hurt because my son is screwing his life up and hates me and we hate each other right now and you know who knows what's going to happen and uh he finally just, they apparently had this big fight yeah beforehand so yeah, yeah. you can relate to the boy a boy and his father fighting and he just completely breaks down in tears and you know to me it's so powerful to see someone like lee j cobb or in another in, in, in speaking of uh of George C. Scott again, you know, mm-hmm. someone like him having a moment where they sincerely cry, you know, or have this emotional kind of moment. I find that incredibly powerful. And the, the yeah. moment I'm thinking about is actually from a different, not from 12 Angry Men for George C. Scott, but from The Changeling. There's a moment in that movie where he's just in bed by himself crying over his and daughter crying, yeah. and it's, 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 it's brief. <laughs> it's, 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 it's almost, it's a moment that could have been cut out of the movie to be honest. And you probably wouldn't miss it, but it's so important to me because just yeah. to see someone, I hate, I, I, I don't know if my terminology is going to be right here, but fuck it. Um, who's sort of traditionally masculine, you know, sort of the man's man who is, showing vulnerability i think that's really powerful thing on film that we don't see that yeah and it's authentic yep. and it feels real in here and yeah jay lee cobb, i did it again lee j cobb is here <laughs> he's been an asshole during the whole movie we know that but in this moment he admits it yeah. he says i was wrong and he doesn't even he doesn't even have to he say doesn't even have to say because he, he's still going on the rant and he's still saying things that completely contradict himself when he just starts crying and says not guilty. Yeah. And then they all just sort of slowly shuffle out. Yeah, and then nobody says anything, and then they just go one right after the other. Out. And then Henry Fonda goes over and gets his suit jacket and puts it on him. And and it's just sort of a quiet moment. I guess in the TV version, I, I, I watched uh, I watched something on the Criterion disc about... Uh, and I guess the television version ends a little differently. Uh, juror number three goes to give the switchblade back to juror number eight. <laughs> But he has it open. He has it open, and he's like holding it at it, <laughs> and, and it's it's kind of strange. And, and then he closes it and hands it to him, and it, it's it's just sort of like like there's something that's still sort of unresolved about this, and it's so. You could have done that, and then the two of them could have smiled. Yeah. that would have been a good moment. right. Yeah, and to be honest, there's there's only I think so. and to me this is essentially a perfect movie. But there's this mm. one shot, for some reason, really kind of looked weird to me this time. And that was when they're, when the camera's behind the the bar of the coat rack. Something about it looked really strange to me. I don't know why. It shouldn't have bothered me, but it just kind of did. It just, just felt like, well, we haven't been in that part of the room. Why is the, why is the camera in the oh, closet? Okay, it, yeah, it, made, yeah. it made it feel like the room was, was not finite. Whereas the rest of the movie, you feel you feel like you have four walls up, and you are stuck in this room. The camera feels tight in there, and that's the one moment where the camera doesn't feel like it's really in the room. But the movie still never. But there's feels the, small to me. No, 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 no. And that that that's it never does. That's like the smallest, stupidest criticism in the world. So, you know, so no. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, even though yes, they're 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 in this room the whole time. They go into the bathroom. Once, I think. Yeah. 
And then there's the, op- the stuff at the opening mm-hmm. and at the end, they're all in this room. The movie never never feels small to me. No. It's always they always keep it interesting with the Absolutely. with the shots and how they do it and that's the mark of a great director. The and camera that is, is met. The camera's very so good. Yeah, absolutely. The camera's so fluid in this movie. It's yes. almost like a it's almost like a Scorsese movie like After Hours or Goodfellas, you know, that has sort of this mm-hmm. roving camera going. You know, I mean it's not that kinetic, but it's but it yeah. moves a lot. I love the how tight all the shots get towards the end yeah. of the movie. You know, where you just, That's what I was gonna say. You like, just then see you can the feel raised... as the tension. Yeah. You just see the, the raised is rising hands. The you know, when they do that last vote, you just see the raised hands. You don't see any faces. You know, it, it, it's just, oh, it's <laughs> it's so good. And, and I was very happy to revisit this one. And, and I'm always happy always to revisit happy. this. I can watch this anytime. Yes. All right, are we done with that one, then? Oh, I'm sorry to say it, but I... I don't want to stop talking about something. I know. <laughs> I, I mean, we, we had a hard time s- switching from third man to this one. Just know, yes, if we left anything out, we love this movie, we love everything about it. Yeah. We probably could have talked for another hour, Honestly, but we're yeah. going to wrap it up now. We, this is one of those movies that you could do, you know, because <laughs> there are the podcasts where, you know, you, like, take uh, one minute of a movie at a time. You could mm-hmm. you could so do that. With oh my movie. god, I want to do a twelve angry man version of that. Yeah, so Let's work so on that'll that. that'll be our that'll be our side our our, <laughs> be our side our project. Side project. Uh, twelve angry minutes, <laughs> but it'll be more than twelve minutes. It'll be all the minutes yeah. in the movie. But oh my gosh, the wheels are turning, Brian. Yeah. We gotta get on this. Yeah, you know it. <laughs> all right, so our weekly recommendations for this episode. Uh, why don't you? Go first. What, what you got? Okay, so I mentioned uh, I really, really, really wanted. I wish I could recommend Mank, uh, the new David Fincher movie uh, that's on mm-hmm. Netflix. I watched it, and I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. I, I'm sorry to say it was. It wasn't bad. I didn't hate it. Uh, I, the performances were excellent, um, especially Amanda Seyfried. As Marion Davies, okay. it was wonderful to see sort of a a, a, a movie because obviously Citizen Kane is is sort of well known as more or less maligning the name of Marion Davies, and this sort of tries to rec- rectify that because uh, she was quite uh, a funny and intelligent and, and lovely person. So there's so much to like about it, but it ultimately just didn't work for me. So I've decided. Nah. I and I I was like oh the Orson Welles connection he's in it for like ten <laughs> seconds you know <laughs> that would have been nice but it uh, I just can't Not so much? Okay. I just can't I'm sorry to say I mean obviously make your own opinions of it um, but of but uh, it's on Netflix and you can watch it but I can't in good conscience recommend it um, however I did uh, last night finally watch a movie from. I think it's 2014. It's called Comet, uh, starring uh, Justin Long and Emmy oh, Rossum. I'm sorry. Awesome. I almost forgot her name there. I haven't heard of this. Yeah, this is a recommendation uh, from from Jerry Smith, who's a writer for uh, Dread Central and Council of Zoom, all sorts of things. who um, has been around a long time with that. Uh, co-host of Pod and the Pendulum. Uh, he has been talking about this movie for a long time, and he he wrote a new article about it, and it's like okay, I'm 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 going to finally 
see this movie. And I, I was able to find it at my library and check it out. Uh, and it's just a wonderful little movie. It's an IFC movie that is, I mean, it's funny. It's a, it's a relationship movie, uh, but it's kind of told out of time and out of sequence and uh, sort of just a few major moments from, from this relationship that are intercut. And boy, it's a, it's a beautiful little movie. And I, I really recommend oh. it. It's Comet. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah, it's, it's very good. <laughs> okay. Mine is a little weird. It's all fine. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I find interesting stuff to do or something to watch when um, I'm kind of bored and I go through the videos on Facebook. I don't use my Facebook, but I keep it just so I can watch all those random videos that pop up in the feed. You know, have you ever done that? Sure. It's fun. You can find a lot of cool things. But that's how I found these. There's two people. Um, I'm not big on um, you know, YouTubers or watching YouTubers. I don't know them that well. So they, these might be like well-known people. But <laughs> there are two uh, beauty YouTubers that I found that both do something a little bit different and more than beauty. It's uh, Jamie French and Bailey Sarian. Jamie French, instead of, you know, those um, makeup videos where it's just like weird music and they're just doing their makeup and not saying anything the whole time. And it's like, it's cool because they're really good at their makeup, but it's not really that interesting to watch. <laughs> these two, these two make it interesting. And it's been so fun. Jamie French, she's hilarious. She has such a great, like dry sense of humor. And one thing that she does, um, I think they both do their special things um, on Mondays. She does like movie reviews and makeup. Oh wow! <laughs> but she likes she likes to do really bad movies though, and just <laughs> it's <laughs> hilarious. Like she's done, um, she's done Crossroads, the Britney Spears movie, which I don't think is a bad movie. I've whatever. never seen it. I she's wasn't exactly the target audience for for Crossroads. <laughs> she's done glitter okay the first thing she did which i think gave her the idea to keep going with this was this movie i never even heard of called the buttercream gang from like the 80s or 90s i know but anyway the videos are just her she's just sitting there doing her makeup she's basically going through um the, the plot of the movie and like giving her commentary on it and she's just hilarious it's so fun to watch so I recommend her. And then um, Bailey Sarian, she kind of does a similar thing, except she does um, murder mystery and makeup. Oh, right up your Where she, yeah. tells a tr- she tells a true crime story uh-huh. while she's doing her makeup. So if you're looking for um, something that's a little bit interesting to watch, if you don't have time for a whole movie, I say watch these girls because they're amazing. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> That's fun. I kind of like I kind of like beauty like and makeup videos because you get to see the artistry. But uh, these both they're both like super great. I mean, Bailey Sarian is like she's amazing mm-hmm. at makeup. But I love that they picked these two things to uh, kind of make it a little bit different and make it more interesting. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was different and weird. That, and hey, that, you probably I wouldn't it. be into it. I but... love it. I love it. Okay, cool. So uh, next week, uh, Michelle, why don't you tell us what what we kind of decided we want to do here? Well, this is kind of my idea. Um, for uh, on our first episode, we picked five of our forever favorite movies. So I thought as a way, because we all want to, we want to talk about those, all of them eventually. A way to do that is we'll just do as a topic. We'll just do a forever favorite topic. Where we'll each pick one from our list, and I thought we could do that maybe every five episodes until we get through them and so our next episode then we'll have to pick five five more yeah yeah i could pick five maybe i could pick five more sure so our next episode is episode five so we're going to do our first 
forever favorites. What have we picked? I think we we picked we picked we picked um <laughs> well <laughs> we de- we decided we went through them and it's like which are the what how would these pairings work out best? And so we decided we're going to celebrate your dad. Kind of an obvious one, yes. Yeah. We went for a dad double feature. Yeah. So uh, your dad, Martin of course, Scorsese. Martin Scorsese. And so my pick from Martin Scorsese was uh, 1976 uh, Taxi Driver. And yours is? 1995's Casino, which they could not be more different. They so are excited. so different. And it's going to be interesting <laughs> to watch them together uh, in pretty close uh, succession. The other ones on our list kind of work well paired up as a double yeah. bill, but this is the only one I'm not so sure of. It's, it's, and it's weird because it's the same filmmaker. To have something and same main actor, yeah. To to have Scorsese in a fairly formative movie still uh, with with Taxi Driver, his first Mean Streets. It's hard to not call it a masterpiece, uh, but you know, uh, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is uh, definitely a masterpiece. Uh, one of the very first of his long in a long list, frankly masterpieces from martin scorsese so to see casinos on that list and casino masterpiece but but the thing is to, to think that it's it's now that you know thinking of these two movies together it's hard to even think that they're from the same filmmaker because they're so different from each other in so many ways mm-hmm. and uh so i'm i'm kind of excited to see if there is any sort of you know tissue that connects them you know that that i may not have thought yeah. about I'm just really excited to talk about Casino because I fucking love Casino. <laughs> and you know, so I, I, I'm ta- I'm excited to, to talk about Casino as well because I haven't seen it in a while, to be honest. I I do own the movie um, and have for quite a while, but uh, for whatever reason, it's it's not it's not on my regular rewatch list. Uh, Taxi Driver is sort of a regular. I, I used to watch it quite often. Obviously, it's a bit of a downer, so we'll probably start with that one. And then, and then end with yeah, that'd be, yeah. Then end with end casino with um, because casino is nice and cheery, you know, where you beat up your friends, <laughs> and <laughs> bury them in a but... cornfield, and, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's bright, yeah, it, you're right. Vegas, it's so yeah. way more fun. Yeah, very, very good. So I'm, I'm excited for that, and um, and also to talk about Scorsese, who is, uh, you know, I, I so often. You know, I, I, I often say, you know, Hitchcock is my favorite filmmaker, but it's so close. I, I, I adore Scorsese. Absolutely adore Scorsese. I, it, it, it's sort of this. As a person, too, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just just uh, oh, man, there's there's so many wonderful things to say about the man himself as well. Yeah. All right. That's going to be awesome. Though, so yeah. Super excited. Absolutely. OK, so I guess we're. Signing off for now, but we look forward to next time. And do you forget something again? Did I forget something? I was. Oh, I. You can follow us online. Oh, I did. Oh man, so you're good. So Brian. it's a good thing you do the editing and not me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who says I'm going to edit this? I'm going to leave. Going to leave again. all of my ums and ahs and stupid yes. beginnings of sentences and and trailing <laughs> off into nowhere. Yes. Um, as well you should. So we do need to talk about... Okay, so you go first. You go first. Where do we find you on? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Michelle N. Agin. And you can find me on Twitter at Brian D. Kuiper. 
And you can find us on Twitter <laughs> at uh, Movie Life Pod. And uh, okay, now you can say goodbye. And now I can show. say, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, how could I forget the most important thing? Where to find us on Twitter? And so, you know, hey, (laughs) we also would love to hear what you think about these particular movies. Uh, Do you love The Third Man and uh, Twelve Angry Men? Um, Do you not care for them? Though that'd be weird. weird. But okay. Um, But okay. Um, If you don't, you know, hey, I'm. I'm, We can talk about that too. We can help you. Not gonna judge you too much. Nah, no, not too. Maybe a little. Just a little. But but we'll still like you. (laughs) Um, so <laughs> anyway, um, I say that a lot when I need to change the subject, I think. Um, so anyway, anyway yeah. um, moving on to next time uh, where we talk about Michelle's dad. Yes. Justin. So excited. Dad. Okay. <laughs> I, <laughs> sorry, I'm ram- I feel like I'm just rambling on. So we. Okay. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening and we'll see you or you'll hear us, we should say, next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.